officers, and welcome to Starter Quest, a podcast where we look at classic video games through the eyes of the recently infected. Uh, games. Episode number eight, where we'll be trying to survive Resident Evil. I am your host, who usually has the words itchy tasty stuck in his head, Alessandro Crowler, alongside the woman who definitely brings the stars to this podcast. Officer Jen Hughes. Hi, what's happened to your throat? Oh, just a little, a little infection, that's all. <laughs> well, no doubt it'll be making its way to me as well then. Yes, the infection spreads. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm a bit zombified myself, actually. I've had a bit of a long week. I know, it's such a hard time we're going through right now. You know, end of the summer, the Queen's death. I don't know how we all cope. <laughs> what have you been playing recently? So I've been playing a couple of things recently. Mm-hmm. I had to make a bit of a detour on the Pokemon Odyssey. For those who don't know, I decided that I was going to try and move across the Pokemon I played as for the Leaf Green episode over to the modern games. Mm-hmm. It's all process. You get to play a whole bunch of the other games. And I was hoping to play Pokemon Diamond on the DS mm-hmm. and move some of my boys across that way. But we've ran into issues with uh, my copy of Leaf Green. Yeah, for some reason, just your copy of Diamond isn't registering it. We think it's something wrong with the cartridge. One of our friends has kindly loaned me Pokemon Emerald, which is another Game Boy Advanced one. So I've started doing that. And another game I've started playing is The Sims 2, Mm -hmm. which I am low-key obsessed with. Yeah, I don't know how you're going to fit in time to play Resident Evil with your current diet of Sims 2 every night. Yeah, (laughs) I started playing The Sims 2 when I was 12 I bought a copy of Sims 2 Double Deluxe when I was in holiday in Florida. Mm-hmm. I've always had a love for it since then. I picked it up again and I've went back to what I used to do, which was create a massive Uber neighbourhood with all the pre-made neighbourhoods, all the default Sims that you get, and my own custom Sims, all in the one, complete mishmash, and I'm having a great time. What games have you been playing? Well... I've been slowly working my way through Digimon Survive, Mm -hmm. quite enjoying it. I already knew going in that it's not actually a survival game, and it actually is a visual novel RPG game. I am fine with that, and I'm still enjoying it. I did notice that Matt McMuscles put out a what happened on it, despite the fact that the game was only released like five minutes ago. Mm -hmm. The more interesting game I've been playing recently, though, was something I've stumbled onto called Arcade Paradise. Yeah, I've I've watched you play that. It looks fun. It's an incredible management simulator game where you start off running a laundromat that has a few arcade machines in the back. And slowly but surely as you play through the game, you're turning this business into an arcade. All the arcade games are not only playable, but you're encouraged to play them as much as you can to get more buzz around those machines. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating game. I could honestly spend, oh... One hour and 22 seconds talking about it. (laughs) But rather than do that here, I was graciously invited onto the Playcube Gamecast podcast to discuss this game with Chase. But before you go away and check out that episode, I would recommend that you stay with us long enough while Jen explains her knowledge of Resident Evil. Yeah. Let's start off at the genre of this game. I told you last time it'd be a new genre. Do you know what we call this type of game? It's a survival horror. That is correct. How would you describe a survival horror game? In these games, you've got to try and survive. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, that's just life, isn't it? Trying to survive. But hear me out. It's mostly about stealth and endurance and puzzles. 
a lot of the time I don't think you're going in with guns blazing or anything. Like you have to do some fighting enemies, but there's either like too many of them or they're a bit too overpowered. So you kind of have to just hide from them for a bit. You have to be a lot more strategic. You can't go in guns blazing. I am basically describing what little gameplay I have seen of Resident Evil, aren't I? You're not entirely wrong. Right. There's just some things that you're going to probably see are not that complex in this game. We are playing one of the very first survival horror games that got mass appeal. Mm -hmm. I do want to point out that survival horror is a completely different genre to survival games. Right. Okay. Explain. Survival horrors nowadays do involve the things you're talking about there, about managing your resources, using stealth, picking your battles, and being a lot more strategic. This is very early in the system where we didn't have the right stealth mechanics yet. Ah, okay. So instead, the survival element comes from managing your resources only. There is a finite amount of items and you cannot waste them. Right. So... What do you know about Resident Evil? Not all that much, I don't think. I saw some of the movies as a teenager, but as far as I've been told, it's just Resident Evil fan fiction. Pretty much. There's not really much crossover to the series apart from the baddie. And there are some of the characters in there, but the actual characters take a backseat to Mia Jovovich's character. There's also Umbrella Corps. Yes, those were the baddies I was talking about. The the big baddies. What do you know about the Umbrella Corporation? They are basically evil McEvil and sons. <laughs> and they decide, we're going to make a zombie virus. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you kind of got that in the one. <laughs> It's funny, I actually titled one of my poems Umbrella Corpse. It's about like this really nice, wholesome, like arts community group. They're trying to organize like a whole bunch of different initiatives and things, and it was quite stressful to listen to, but I thought it'd be really funny to name them that my group are nice and uh, Umbrella Corps are not. You've probably caught me a few times in previous episodes referring to them as being evil for the sake of evil. Yes. I want to explain that term. You can write baddies that make perfect sense in their logic as to why they do what they're doing. I think the gold standard of this is Magneto from the X-Men. Yeah, yeah. Magneto's stance for mutants should take over the Earth because they are the superior race is very justified evil to the point where it's quite common to find a t-shirt that says Magneto was right. Considering the state of the world right now, yes, Magneto was right. I welcome my mutant overlords. Umbrella exists on the opposite end of the spectrum. They are a pharmaceuticals company. They seem to have this idea that doing massively evil things to make weapons makes sense. There are people who do see Big Pharma like that, though. Oh yeah, we're, they made the virus so they could make money off it and wouldn't put it past these people to do that. It seems like a bit of a caricature of that. I'm always going to fall back to the rich people defence. If any conspiracy feasibly affects rich and powerful people, then it's a stupid conspiracy. Right. So you're about to learn for yourself just how stupidly evil, and I do emphasise the stupid, this pharmaceutical company can be. Yes. What else do you know about Resident Evil? Um, I know about uh, Mr. X because of that video. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's the mod that someone put in one of the new Resident Evil reboots 
where every time you hear Mr. X coming after you, it's X gun give it to you. <laughs> and it gets louder the closer he gets. Yeah, I literally only know about Mr. X because of that. Sadly, that's the sequel. He's not in this game. Ah, right, okay. Anything else you know about Resident Evil? Um, there's the T-Virus. What's the T-Virus? It's the thing that makes the zombies go zombie. Mm-hmm. Or the thing that makes uh, the Mr. X go X. I don't know. It's something like that. It's the cause of all the problems. And they're trying to find a cure for it. And they they don't. What's the T stand for? Uh, terrible? <laughs> don't know. Okay, okay. It's probably a British invention. (laughs) (laughs) Had to get that obligatory joke in there. I think in this game, trying to like find their way around a spooky haunted mansion with a spooky haunted secret laboratory underneath it. Yeah, that's... uh, You're going to see how on the money that is when we start. (laughs) And um, there's also a scene where one of the characters almost becomes a Jill sandwich. That's an iconic line. It's so funny. Why is it called a Jill sandwich? Because her name's Jill. Yes. What's her full name? Do you know it? Jill Valentine? Yes. Yeah. Any other characters you can name from this game? Um, Chris Redfield. Mm-hmm. Billy Bunting. <laughs> Bunting? Close, close. Uh, you have got the two main characters of the game. There's the mad scientist who made the T-virus. Called? Ted? Oh, it's T for Ted virus, that's it. (laughs) Welcome to my Ted virus. (laughs) We should eat the rich and here are some nice recipes. It pairs well with a nice Chianti. (laughs) My money is that he's a big bad mutant boy um, who's not Mr. X. He's something else and he gets more mutanties it goes on and Umbrella Corpse. Ah, I'm not going to spoil that one. I'm going to leave that one alone. You've got to find out as you play the game. Right, okay. Do you know who made this game? Um, Not Team Silent. No, that made Silent Hill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Team Resident? <laughs> no. Capcom? Yes. What? Yes, they are making a second appearance on this podcast in a row. I don't like we're doing two Capcom games back to back. But I just had to do a horror game and Resident Evil is the most approachable one we could do at this time. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a very special name attached to this game, though, as the director. Do you know his name? No. That's fine. He is one of my favourite game directors and I'll teach you about him in our second half. Right, okay. What are you expecting from this game? I'm nervous about this game, actually. Because it's going to be scary. And I find scary games, like, stressful. And <laughs> I'm going to be, like, trying to hide from things. And there'll be spooky zombies. And mm, I, I don't know. I don't do well with horror. Don't worry. We'll play during the day. And I'll hold your hand as you play. Thanks, Sandro. Actually, now that I say that, I just remembered you are going to be holding the controller. So I will be by your side holding your shoulder. Thanks, Sandro. For this one... I am finally getting some use out of my PlayStation 1 Classic. Hey! We're going to be playing this on the original PlayStation 1 controller, which I've got here. Ooh! We're going to play this with the original inputs, which is the controller before it even got the analog sticks. I've held a PlayStation 2 controller before. I used mm-hmm. to play PlayStation 2 games quite a bit when I was, when I was a kid. 
well, I say PlayStation games. I mean The Sims 2 console games. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> but I am familiar with a PlayStation 2 controller. Were the PlayStation 1 controllers like this narrow? I don't yes. remember. Really? I actually do have a working PS1 downstairs. I'm just using the classic because it plugs into my HDTV a lot easier. Right. But the controllers are one for one. This is exactly how the controllers look on the official console. So to describe it, on the left hand side, you've got your two left triggers and direction buttons. Mm -hmm. On the right hand side, you've got your right trigger buttons. And the input buttons on this one are a bit different to what we've covered before. Mm -hmm. So there's a triangle at the top, Mm -hmm. a square at the left, a circle at the right and an X at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And in the middle, there's your select and your start button. By this point, they're common all controllers. Yeah, and it's super narrow as well. I'm quite surprised, actually. The original idea was to do this controller as just like a bone. So it was just going to be two circles with a stick in the middle, like mm-hmm. that. They found in testing, though, that it was lots more comfortable to add these two long grips to the side. And it does make the controller a lot more comfortable to hold. Yeah, it does. Every console these days now puts grips in the controllers because it just makes things a lot more comfortable to hold, especially when you've got to support pressing the shoulder buttons. Yeah. I mean, I've become very familiar with the controls without grips mm-hmm. and the ones with grips are so much more comfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I said, we're going to be playing this on the PlayStation 1 and we're going to be playing the Resident Evil Director's Cut. Is that the one where the music is good? Yes. This was the version they brought out when Resident Evil 2 was delayed, and they wanted to put out something as a bit of an apology to the fans. They've put in some quality of life fixes into the game. Oh, good. That will make this game a lot easier to play. I am slightly using this game to test how far you're coming along with learning these video games. Yeah? For a while now, I've been slowly but surely increasing the controller difficulty of these games, Mm -hmm. as you seem to get a lot more familiar with what you're doing with your thumbs. Right. If you can handle this game... I think you're at the right level where we could start playing things a bit more advanced. Ooh, yay, sounds good. But we'll see what happens with that. Because there have been plenty of games, like even the previous episode, where I've complained about the controls. But I mean, I guess that's just teething troubles, isn't it? True, but that's also the point that by the end you could beat both those games. Mm, that's true, that's true. I did toy with doing Resident Evil 2 instead of Resident Evil 1. I would say it's the better game. However, there's something pure about Resident Evil 1 that I think every gamer needs to experience for themselves. Yeah, I've got an idea of what you mean by that, but I don't know if I want to spoil it just yet. You probably do. It's no secret. I think it's the voice acting. It's very cheesy and hammy. Yes. You did touch on this a bit earlier with the Jill Sandwich thing. Yeah. (laughs) The voice acting in this game is incredibly hokey and schlocky. I would argue that it makes sense to the feel of the game, but this is something I'll better explain in the second half. I mean, it is a game where you like hunt around a spooky haunted mansion looking for clues. I guess you can't take yourself too seriously where you're basically just military Scooby-Doo. It is kind of like Scooby-Doo if they added more gunshots and blood. Yeah. That's coming up on a lot of episodes these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what the live-action Scooby-Doo movies were missing. Guns and blood. Would have improved it for me. (laughs) The very first Scooby-Doo movie was going to be rated higher, and they had to tone down the whole movie because the studio got cold feet at the 11th hour. I would have liked to see that version. There's a deleted scene cutting about where Velma's, like, possessed by one of the weird ghost things. 
and like she becomes really hot and it's so confusing. <laughs> it would have been really funny to see that. <laughs> I can't lie. The Resident Evil series goes alongside Sonic and Pokemon for me as games I was deeply obsessed with as a kid. Really? I was around nine or ten when I played this. Definitely too young. But it was still just the coolest game ever, despite how scary it started to get for me as the series went on. Mm. When I got my PS Plus premium subscription, one of the first things I downloaded was the Resident Evil Director's Cut on my PS5. Right. Originally, I was intending just to test my knowledge before we played it through ourselves. And I completed that game in a single night. I just know all the solutions at the back of my hand. I didn't have any questions about what to do. It's my first time playing it in at least 10 years, and I can still remember everything to do in it off the top of my head. Wow. A bit like me being able to hit the ground running with all the controls in The Sims 2. Yeah, it's just embedded in my brain forever. Yeah. Right, let's move into the rules of gameplay for this. Brilliant. Rule 1. The game is broken up into two campaigns. The Chris campaign and the Jill campaign. You will be playing the Jill campaign. Okay. It's considered to be the easier of the two as you get a bigger inventory and better weapons. Okay. Plus it's the version that has most of the legendary bad voice acting. Yeah, that's what we're here to see. We'll structure the second half of the episode around the Jill campaign, but just for context, before we record, I'm going to do a playthrough of the Chris campaign, just so you can see how they differ for yourself. Right, brilliant. Rule two, you'll be doing your own playthrough, with me to guide you if you get a little lost on what to do next. Which I'm sure will happen at some point. The only time I'm saying now I'm going to blatantly tell you what to do is to ensure you get the good ending for the game, as it's considered the most canonical. Ah, okay. These are some very small actions you'll probably do anyway, but I just want to make sure you get it so you can get that ending. Mm-hmm. Rule three. This is one of the few times where I'm going to mandate that we don't use the easy mode for the game. Right? Why? The easy mode to the Resident Evil 1 Director's Cut is called Training Mode. It doubles all the ammo and some of the consumables. Unfortunately, this breaks one of the most fundamental experiences of Resident Evil 1, preserving your ammo and not wasting it. Yeah. It's good to know that that option's there for people who might listen to this episode and decide, oh, I'd like to pick up this game and play it. If they're finding the normal mode too hard, then there is an option they can go to make it easier for themselves. That's a good thing. That is true, but there is something fundamental to the game that you're missing when you do that. Mm. Imagine playing Super Mario Bros. 3, but all the jumping obstacles were removed. Right, okay. Yeah, you complete the game, but you're just missing something perfect about the experience. Mm-hmm. When we played Doom on easy mode, that was to compensate for your difficulty in the game, but you still got the full Doom experience. Mm-hmm. I would say it's still not a hard game, and I absolutely can see you completing this game, but I do want you to have the full experience of the game. Right, okay. I'll see if I agree with you in the second half, but at the moment I'm inclined to disagree. So, you have your PS1 controller? Yep. And you've got your copy of the Zombie Survival Guide? Um, yeah. Yeah, I got it. Good book, by the way. (laughs) Are you ready to try and survive a night with Resident Evil? (sighs) Yes. All right. Let's get started. Welcome back. Got through this game in three weeks. Not too bad for you. Yeah, I'm quite proud of myself, actually. 
What are your immediate thoughts on the game? It's a lot scarier than I thought. You knew we were getting into a horror game, to be fair. Yes. <laughs> I thought that it would be undercut a little bit by the iconic cutscenes. In a way it was, I'll get to that later, mm-hmm. but I was still very scared in my playthrough. It can be understated that the atmosphere in this game is palpable. Oh yeah, yeah. We didn't really talk much about it in our first half, but you knew that this was going to be a fight against zombies, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I watched the movies and mm-hmm. I'd seen a few people talk about Resident Evil. Yeah, it's not hard to know that the mansion has been overrun by zombies. Yeah, well, I mean, we say overrun. There's not as many zombies. Considering nowadays you get media that's got hordes and hordes of zombies, there's not too many in this game. Yeah, we don't have the processing power for hordes yet. That will come, that will come. Even though you found it scary, did you at least enjoy your time playing it? Um, yeah, I think so. Horror's not really my genre. No, we've never been big into horror, two of us. Yeah, but watching it as... Part of the curriculum, I did quite enjoy it. Mm -hmm. How was it to play? How was the controls? Uh, Controls... You move your character around with something called tank controls. Yes, this was a new thing for us that I knew you'd have to get used to. What are tank controls? Named after how you steer a tank. I think so. I've never actually looked into the etymology of the term. It was more based on what I was considered to be remote control cars and how they're controlled. Right, how? When you have a remote control car, the controls you've got in your hand can't really interpret what way you're looking at it. So no matter what way the car is looking, if you press the direction to move the car forward, it will move forward in whatever way you press it. Mm-hmm. Left will turn it left, right will turn it right, and back will make it move backwards. With Resident Evil and tank controls, they're controlled the exact same way. Doesn't matter what way the camera is looking at Jill. If you press the up key, she will always move forward in the way she's looking. Sometimes you have to turn her around and she's very slow to turn around. Yeah, because what doesn't help this at all is the camera angles you have for this game. The camera angles are quite interesting. It's a bit like looking through a bunch of security cameras. Exactly, yeah. Sometimes it gives you an idea of how far the corridor is, Mm -hmm. but it only gives you it in little chunks. There's one of them in the game, for example, that only shows you the door that you've just came out of. I thought it was a Mm cutscene, but it's not. You have to walk forward to see the rest of the corridor. Mm -hmm. Because your field of vision is really limited, a zombie or whatever other monster you see can just spring out of nowhere and scare the living daylights out of you. Yeah, the game is awful for moments where you've sometimes caught a zombie. You try to back up to get some distance from it, but you end up going onto a different camera angle. Mm. And now the camera angle will show you, but not the zombie. So you're kind of shooting a bit blind. Yeah. But yeah, this was not easy to get used to, was it? Not really. Thankfully, tank controls are something that didn't stick around in games that long. Yeah, that's why in a lot of modern games, you don't see it. But this same style of being quite slow to turn around and having the character be quite heavy and slow, you're going to find on a lot of PS1 games. Right, okay. When we get to things like Tomb Raider, the camera stays behind Lara at all times usually, but it's still very slow and heavy the way she moves. Yeah. (laughs) I could argue that the fact that it's hard to control Jill It adds to the tension. You've got this monster coming right at you Mm -hmm. and you can barely move. Yeah, it's a bit nightmarish in the terms of like something in a nightmare. 
Mm. Like you're trying to run, but your legs don't work. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It does add to the horror effect of nothing else. Mm -hmm. I was treated to the cheesy voice acting in the cutscenes. Yes. Now, I'll save putting in clips of the voice acting for the listeners for when it comes up in the playthrough. Mm -hmm. Off the top of your head right now, how did you feel about the voice acting in this game? Um, It was levity for a very scary game at first. But then as the game got on, and I'm like really getting into the story, and then you've got voice acting and dialogue that is just as cheesy, and later on in the game downright bad, it really breaks the story's legs, to be honest, and is a bit of a hindrance. Yeah, it's... We'll come back to the subject later, but it does have its limitations, let's see. Before we go any further, let's just set a little groundwork and go into the development of this game. Yeah, sure. Resident Evil was released on the very first PlayStation, aka the PS1, in March 1996 by Capcom, six months after the Western launch of the PS1, which was great for the American market. We in Britain didn't get the game until August, which was still in the launch year though. Was that along with the rest of Europe? Yes. The Resident Evil series is known as Biohazard in Japan. Right. But they couldn't trademark this title outside of Japan. So for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to refer to it as Resident Evil throughout this design process. The name that is closely linked to the Resident Evil series is the superstar developer Shinji Mikami. Genuinely, one of my favourite game designers. If I were a weaker man, we'd have covered Resident Evil much earlier, and by now we'd be doing God Hand and Vanquish. I just love everything he makes. What's a God Hand and Vanquish? Two different games that if I have my way will find their way onto this podcast. <laughs> right, okay. He was a famous name within Capcom until he left to make his own studio, Platinum Games. And honestly, they're one of these developers that the minute I hear them attached to a title, I will probably want to try that game. So they could make a game that looks like an absolute shit train wreck and you will still pay full price for it. Yes, I would. And it was called Transformers Devastation. <laughs> they made a Transformers game? Yeah. They actually went to the effort of making it look like the old cartoons. Ah, right. So not like the Michael Bay ones. No. Back when Resident Evil was being developed, Shinji Mikami was a decently respected developer within Capcom. Not allowed to make any of his own ideas by this point in his career but trusted enough to be involved with designing some of the licensed games Capcom are making for Disney. Like? Uh, they did a Goof Troop game and an Aladdin game. Right, okay. This project, however, would be Mikami's first time getting to direct. Development began as a spiritual successor to an NES classic called Sweet Home. What's that? It was an RPG game based on a Japanese horror movie of the same name. Right, okay. Another movie tie-in, basically. Yeah, it was another early point in the survival horror genre. Right. Sweet Home's director, Tokuro Fujiwara, was set to be this new game's producer. Fujiwara being a well-respected director within Capcom, also having his own tie to some of the earlier horror games like Ghost and Goblins. That, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, that's a really fun one. Yeah. He became a bit of a mentor to Mikami through this project, kind of showing him all the stuff they couldn't do in Sweet Home and try and get into this game. One problem that Capcom had, though, was that they had lost the rights to Sweet Home. They then had to take everything they'd been building and put it into its own original IP. Oh, it's a bit like how Doom was supposed to be an alien tie-in movie game. They didn't lose the rights to it. They instead thought this was really good that we could just make it our own IP and control it. Ah, right, okay. With Doom, it was a choice. With this, they make it sound like it was more something that was thrust upon them. It could be the same situation, but we don't know. The original plan was that they were going to release this on the Super Nintendo, 
that's the console we played Earthbound on. Right. But when Sony announced that it was entering the console market with its own console with, you know, blackjack and hookers. I think that's another story, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. When are we going to get into the story? Right, very briefly. Originally, Sony was going to make a partnership with Nintendo to make a disc-based system for the Super Nintendo. The deal they originally agreed would allow PlayStation to control licensing for the disc-based games. Right. Which they were all for, but Nintendo backed out at the last moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've heard this story. This pissed off Ken Kutaragi, who pushed for Sony to release their own consoles and keep the same better licensing deals. So they had the plans for this console they were going to do for Nintendo, and they thought, well, we've worked so hard on this. We're just going to release it as our own thing. Yes. Fuck you, Nintendo. Yes. And lo and behold, it became the best-selling console of its generation. Which I think it sold a lot better in the UK than any of the other Nintendo consoles at the time. In every market, it sold better. Oh, <laughs> Nintendo regretted that one. Oh, yeah. It's widely been considered to be Nintendo's greatest mistake. Yeah, sounds about right. And that's even more than the Virtual Boy. That's, uh, we'll get to that another day. No, we fucking won't. <laughs> so yeah, when Capcom heard about Sony who are offering a more powerful machine and a better licensing deal, they moved the entire project from Super Nintendo over to this PlayStation. Not the only time they jumped ship to a different console. No, they are far from the only ones. We're going to come up to this point quite a few times when we talk about early PlayStation games. mm One of the big inspirations for Resident Evil came from a series called Alone in the Dark. Oh yeah, Story Mode covered that in their Explained videos. Yeah, the game also used a 3D perspective set from fixed camera angles like this. Looked a lot like Resident Evil, with the minor difference of being shit and awful. (laughs) Just unbearably sluggish to control. Now, seeing the awful time you had with the Resident Evil controllers, imagine how bad this game was that Resident Evil is better. <laughs> Mikami also cites George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead movie as inspiration. Yeah, we watched that last weekend. We did, just to kind of get a bit of understanding as to what came into this. Yeah, it was quite good. Good movie. A good basis for what was like being trapped in a place with zombies who are both a threat to you and also can be dodged with enough ingenuity. Mm. And also the whole scavenging for resources thing. Yeah. And limited resources. Absolutely. Interestingly, actually, they're going to bring Georgie Romero in to do the Resident Evil movies, but the deal fell through. Ah, right. As we touched on our first half, this was the first game to ever be marketed as survival horror. Older games would get this title in retrospect, like Alone in the Dark, but this was the first game that had it in their advertising as a way to make it stand out compared to previous games that had horror elements. It's a very apt term for the game. Yeah. It invokes the idea of a game where part of the challenge is not dying. I mean, that's the case with life, but, you know. (laughs) Admittedly, it's the point of most games we've played so far. Yeah. The difference being is that when it's so baked into the marketing, deaths feel a lot more inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Like... With a lot of video games, especially the ones we've covered so far, if you die, you come back type thing. Mm -hmm. You come back from a checkpoint. But with Resident Evil, if you don't make those checkpoints, you're back at the beginning of the game again. Yeah, it just, the minute you die, it sends you back to a safe point. Mm -hmm. That goes hand in hand with survival horror. There's more recent games that have came out where the minute you die, you go back to a very recent checkpoint. And it removes all the tension when you know the autosaves have you covered. Yeah. (laughs) With them using a whole new console, the engine that Capcom are building wasn't working entirely right with this new PlayStation 1 hardware. 
So they had to find a few shortcuts to make things work. Yeah, this was still something they were getting to grips with. One of the things they were having issues with were low times. Right, yeah. Thankfully, though, you've probably caught this, they had the best way to hide load times. Every time you leave one room and enter another, while the game is loading the next room, a giant door comes up in front of you, unlocks and slowly opens. Or a staircase that you slowly step up. Yeah. With the exception of the door or the stairs, you just see black, limitless void around you. So you don't know what's in that room as you open the door. But just that image of you opening the door and walking through, God, it adds to tension. In two different ways. The way that makes most sense is when you're hunting about looking for clues in the different rooms and you're opening the door really tentatively, making sure that, you know, there's nothing in the room really adds to, like, you know, the ooh, ambience. But then there's the other way where you're running away from a monster that is chasing you and then either the door opens really, really slowly or you're going up the stairs really slowly like step, 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 step. (laughs) They also play it to some wonderful points. Once or twice you'll be opening a door and then suddenly a sharp sting of music will start playing to let you know that you just walked into a trap. (laughs) even though they're having this trouble with the engine resident evil actually still garnered a lot of hype before its release they did this really good beta that they released to the press that deeply impressed them with the hype the game was getting capcom gave the okay for them to use some live action scenes to use for the opening and ending the plan was to use western film actors to fit with the game's american setting and they were going to be dubbed over with japanese voice actors But a decision was made early on to scrap the Japanese voice actors and just use the English dub in all regions, even in Japan. Right. Why was that? Mikami said that doing this was to give the game, quote, a Western movie brought over on VHS with Japanese subtitles. Yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. This decision, though, led to Capcom using English voice actors who were living in Japan at the time rather than record it in America where there would have been a better talent pool. Yeah. This adds to the reason why the voice acting is so subpar. It was Japanese engineers who probably understood a little English, or maybe a lot of English, but wouldn't get the nuances in performance the way that Western audiences would. They assumed that all Americans talk just like these voice actors. I'll explain this more when we actually got something for the audience to listen to. I am grossly underestimating these people for comic effect. I do not actually believe this. Just to state the obvious here. In this version of the game we're playing, the soundtrack is made by Motoko Tomozawa, Akari Kaeda, and Masami Ueda. Tomozawa and Kaeda were both reliable hands within Capcom doing the soundtrack for things like Mega Man X and Street Fighter Alpha. Ueda, on the other hand, was fresh into the job at this time. This was his very first recorded credit in the games industry. Oh, cool. What else did he do? He's done a lot more further work with Capcom doing Resident Evil. He actually, though, did move over with Mikami to Platinum Games and has done music for things like Bayonetta as well. Ah, cool. The music in this game just brings the right amount of tension to the story. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's atmospheric and palpable. Just the right mix to keep the pressure on you whenever you open a door for the first time. 
you'll just be walking through the halls and hearing this faint melody. In the right context, it could be quite decent music, but it just puts this real tension on you. With the exception of one particular song though, called the Save Room theme, this, compared to the other music being quite tense, is very calming, very relaxed, very melodic, and it's to put you at ease. Especially in the safe rooms of this game where you are at no risk to ever being hurt. Yeah, that's generally the safe rooms. You're not going to get hurt in them. Yeah, monsters are never in safe rooms. Even then, like, it doesn't put you completely at ease. It's still, like, very minor key and, like, a bit spooky. It's not to remove all pressure, but just to give you somewhere where you know you're not going to be hurt. Mm. Especially as you're, you know, saving the game or sorting out your inventory. If we're going to talk about the music to Resident Evil 1 though, and even though it doesn't apply to this particular game, I do have to take a brief aside to talk about a little composer called Mamoru Samaragochi. Right, why? Capcom made a second director's cut for Resident Evil. Oh, this! Now, for explanations to why they did the second director's cut, go listen to our last episode about Street Fighter and them constantly re-releasing popular games. No, there's a Sonic as well. They were constantly re-releasing and stuff. At least Sega had the class to wait until the next console to re-release your last console games. (laughs) This new version was going to have DualShock support, so it would be able to play with the PlayStation controller that had the little sticks. Ah, right. That's why it's called the DualShock version. Yes. And it was going to have a brand new orchestrated soundtrack. So to make this new soundtrack, they brought in Samaragochi, who was starting to make a name for himself as a famous composer. He had done a few movies at the time, but he was definitely a rising star. He actually went on to compose a full orchestrated performance in remembrance of Hiroshima. He's incredibly famous, especially for the fact he suffers from hearing loss. Reportedly so deaf they couldn't even hear the music he wrote. He was considered a hero not only in Japan, but to the entire music world, earning the nickname Japan's Beethoven. However, there was one slight problem with this explanation. His hearing loss issue was total bullshit. What? He did have some hearing loss, but nowhere near as bad as he let on. He was also hiring ghostwriters to write music for him, even as far back as before Resident Evil. I'm wondering whether that's, uh, okay, I've got some issues with my hearing. I need a few people to help me make sure that this sounds okay, because I can't hear it. No, this was full on. These people were writing music for him and he was putting their name on it. Oh, the humanity! Here's the thing though, right? Being deaf though would have at least made some sort of sense because some of his new tracks are fucking awful. Not all of them, right? There's some songs like Rebecca Chambers' theme I would argue is better in the new soundtrack. But then there's others that are just absolute dismal versions. I think the best example of this though is in the mansion basement theme. In the original version, you hear how it's just, again, dripping in tension to be in this zombie dense area of the mansion for the first time. Making you just remember that you can't let your guard down, especially at this point in the game where zombies aren't as common anymore as you move on to bigger and badder monsters. And uh, yeah, they are very much bigger, badder monsters. The original music is the soundtrack to me hearing a noise from downstairs in the middle of the night and hoping it's not a serial killer. Samaraguchi's version, on the other hand, sounded like where to even fucking start with this it is an atonal mess <laughs> i've watched youtube videos where musicians are trying to analyze what they are hearing and i swear to you like the man's eyes 
are just starting to glaze over as he's just trying to process this. If he thought any harder, a beach ball would start spinning. <laughs> now, I'm inclined to defend the artistic choice in principle. How? I mean, even if I and, let's face it, the rest of the world disagree with this... Yeah, people hate the Shock version of this song because it sounds like someone with a contempt for good taste slapped their hands about a synth and called it a day. But there was a whole movement of composers in the 20th century who decided to drop the musical ideas that made our ears happy and were in some sort of key. Sometimes it paid off pretty well. Like you get some jazz musicians, for example, who've used these kind of ideas to make some cool songs with different chords but not everyone was so lucky because the song's very bones is so atonal and make our ears very unhappy it creates this sense of uncanny unease so it feels like a deliberate choice to me i'm sorry you can give the theory to this all you want why did it need to be done by farting clown trumpets (laughs) The trombone makes it sound like we are mocking a fat person. (laughs) Some people are afraid of clowns. No, I'm sorry. You you can try and justify this with all your music logic all you want. This is an awful song. As much theory as you want to add, there is no justifying this. Oh, God. It's just... It is famously awful, this song. It explains it, but it doesn't excuse it. It's the perfect soundtrack to find something smelly and stupid. I mean, isn't that what zombies are? (laughs) (laughs) Let's get through the playthrough. (laughs) Yes, good shout. Set in a wet July, in the futuristic year of 1998... We open on board the helicopter of the Raccoon City Police Department's Special Tactics and Rescue Service, STARS Alpha Team. Alpha Team is flying around the forest zone situated in northwest Raccoon City, where we're searching for the helicopter of our compatriots, Bravo Team, who disappeared during the middle of our mission. No, I haven't found it yet. Bizarre murder cases have recently occurred in Raccoon City. There are outlandish reports of families being attacked by a group of about 10 people. Victims were apparently eaten. Bravo team went to the hideout of the group and disappeared. Look, Chris! We see on screen the STARS Alpha team landing their helicopter to inspect the downed helicopter of the Bravo team. It was Bravo team's helicopter. Nobody was in it. But strangely, most of the equipment was still there. However, we soon discovered why. As they land and inspect the crash site, they are set upon by zombie somethings? Dogs? Crocodiles? Devil dogs? The camera angles aren't good because it's obviously just some prop that they're using. Mm. So they show up from really poor angles just to keep the tension up. Not poor angles, I'd say, but... Angles that make it seem like it's not just a prosthetic rubber thing. Which still ends up looking like a prosthetic rubber thing. Yeah, that's true. Wherever they are, though, they kill Joseph. No! Not Joseph! What will we do without Joseph? 
well, I know exactly what the helicopter would do. It fucks off. Yeah, great optics there, Brad. Yes, that's... As we go through this game, we learn that the helicopter pilot is named Brad Vickers, who affectionately gets the name Chickenheart because he's a giant coward. Oh, right, okay. With the helicopter gone, our gang of four now run to a nearby mansion that left the doors unlocked, and now the stage is set. So we now get a quick rundown of the Alpha Team, or as we all now refer to them as being the A-Team, and we get a rundown of the cast. Now, these titles are added by myself, just for clarity. Our damsel in distress, Chris Redfield. Our leading man, Jill Valentine. Wait, did I get those two mixed up? No? All right, cool, cool. <laughs> Mr. Billy Bunting himself, Barry Burton. <laughs> I was close, there was a lettation. You were close in our intro, yeah. <laughs> Dame not appearing in this playthrough, Rebecca Chambers. <laughs> And Albert Wesker as the guy who wears sunglasses in the middle of the night. Don't question it. The instruction manual actually gives their specialisations as well. Wesker is the team leader. Chris Redfield is the marksman. Jill Valentine is the machine expert. Brad's the pilot. Barry's the weapon specialist. And Joseph is, or was, the vehicle specialist. Basically, they lost their ride home. Yeah. In two ways, because also Brad left. Yeah. I think a vehicle specialist if they have a helicopter. You've got to get someone to drive a car too. Do they? Because they've got a helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I hate to say this, but these people don't make for very convincing elite military slash police operatives. They really give me Amdran friends who've made a short film and will only drink fruit punch at the rap party vibes. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you get when you're only limiting yourself to whatever actors who are in Japan who look American and can do voice acting. As you enter the mansion... And we get to see the real graphics of the game this time. We get to see the opening cutscene. What is this? Wow. What a mansion. Captain Wesker, where's Chris? Stop it. Don't open that door. But Chris is. What is it? Maybe it's Chris. Now, Jill, can you go? I'm going with you. Chris is our old partner, you know. Okay, let me handle this. Stay alert! Sublime. (laughs) Okay, now that I've spliced some of it in, you can now hear how bad the voice acting is in this game. Mikami has admitted that he didn't think Resident Evil would be so international, so the bad voice acting would not have been noticed by the Japanese audience, who would only have been reading the subtitles. So what you're saying is that one person on that team noticed that the voice acting was kind of (laughs) bad. I can't imagine that they didn't notice it was a bit weak. I I know, I'm taking the piss. This is where I said in the intro that I will argue in defence of this voice acting. If you've seen B-movies, they don't have high caliber actors. They have people that the director was close enough that they could get in to do the movie, regardless of the talent. Mm. Sometimes they're great performers and sometimes they're not. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I think it adds to the B-movie feel. Mikami liked the idea of it being a straight-to-video movie that mm-hmm. you've had imported from America. And I think the awful voice acting adds to it. I think so, yeah, I can agree with that. You do get, like, movies that are very much that, that people like to laugh at in their YouTube videos, so... Yeah. Yeah. The bad voice acting in this game did actually win them a Guinness World Record for worst game dialogue ever. Hmm. Who am I to question the logic of people who make alcohol to judge bad voice acting? (laughs) After that opening cutscene, 
You then get to explore the nearby dining room, which is where you first got introduced to the tank controls. Yeah. You didn't like them automatically when starting this game. No, not particularly. I was not partial to the tank controls. <laughs> when we get to the back of this room, we find something at the other side. What? What is this? What is it? Blood. Jill, see if you can find any other clues. I'll be examining this. Hope this is not Chris's blood. Going into the next room, you come across one of the most famous scenes in the game. So while investigating my first corridor, I come across my very first zombie. Mm -hmm. Some guy in a green coat is chowing down on some prime star steak. Barbecue bravo brisket, if you will. Yeah, there's just a corpse in the ground. You see this thing kind of hunched over it. He turns his head and gives me the most exasperated of side-eyes before hobbling over and trying to eat me. There's a giant growl in the soundtrack as he's turning his head. He just has this expression, which is just the biggest you got a problem pal face you've ever did see. <laughs> How did you feel seeing the first zombie? Uh, I squealed. It's a bit hokey once you're used to it. But first time round, there is real tension in seeing it. Already painfully aware of how bad I am at moving Jill Valentine around. And then, oh God, there's a zombie coming at me that's going to kill and eat me. Ah! Thankfully, you don't have to fight this one. You can just turn around and leg it. Like I was going to be able to do that. True. You do thankfully have two weapons on you already. The survival knife, which you never used. And the Beretta, which is handgun. Yeah. I think the handgun became your kind of trusty friend at this early point of the game. Yeah. Not the most powerful of weapons, but, you know, it gets you through the early parts of the game. Yes. It's good against the zombies and the next monster we find. You did end up just having to go toe-to-toe with it, and you beat it. Yeah, that's true. Jill looks upon the body of her fallen stars mate mm-hmm. and sighs. He's a mere shadow of his former self. Shadow of his former self! He's fucking dead, Jill! His former self used to have, you know, skin. This game famously has different ways to get through it. And you've taken one course of events that has you going to see the scene of the zombie turning around. If you hesitate for long enough and try to go back to Wesker and then do this scene, the zombie instead comes to you in the dining room. (gasps) Uh When you then go see Kenneth's body after that, it is then just chunks on the floor. Shadow of his former self. That's more shadow of his former self, admittedly, when he is just a set of legs and a torso. We report back to Wesker, but now Wesker has disappeared. What? This is where we're let off the leash and we're allowed to explore the mansion, but not until Barry gives us one last parting gift. Jill, here's a lockpick. It might be handy if you, the master of unlocking, take it with you. Thanks. Maybe I'll need it. I mean, of course, you know, I'm the master of unlocking. Which makes sense giving her machining expertise. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Before we go much further, I'd like to take an opportunity to mention here what the game consists of. Tank controls, cheesy cutscenes, as we've said, puzzles, great environmental storytelling, tank controls, bad voice acting, as we've mentioned, and, uh... Oh yeah, tank controls. Don't forget the tank controls. (laughs) Yeah, you move Jill around like she's a really janky toy robot. And there's parts in the game where you need to be zippy and reactive with your controls. Yeah. Uh, Wish me luck with that. (laughs) This is something I really struggle to get used to right up until and after the end of the game. (laughs) Yeah, I think especially one of the first rooms you're going to go through is this long corner corridor that as you're walking through it, two zombie dogs will jump in through the windows. 
So how would you describe the zombie dogs? Mm, scary. Yeah, they move a lot faster than the actual zombies. And they also chased me at the start. Like, yeah, you weren't a fan of them, were you? Not particularly, which is a shame because usually I like dogs. Admittedly, if there's only one in the room, they're quite easy to handle because the minute you take a bullet shot, they ricochet backwards. Mm-hmm. Gives you enough time to regroup and prepare for when they come back. So for you, though, coming through this corridor and the dog coming out, you end up having to fight them rather than me who'd usually just run past them. Yeah, two against one, uh, not a great time. Bit of a bummer, to be honest. Yes, this is where you actually experience your first death in the game, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, not fun. No, the deaths in this game are very brutal. I mean, as expected for, you know, a survival horror B-movie. Yeah, because like as soon as you ran out of health, Jill collapses on the floor and the screen goes white. But then it'll fade into this liminal black space again, where the dogs are feasting on Jill's corpse and rip out her throat. Instead of game over, though, the words come up that just say, you died. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. We go back to this point of the game again, and this time you fought the dogs one at a time. Yeah, I don't remember how exactly I did that, but... They only burst through the jaw windows as you pass them. You pass one window, fought the dog, pass the next window, fought the dog. All right, okay. Once we get to the other side of this corridor, though, we get into a room where you find a shotgun. Once you take the shotgun off of the hooks on the wall, you notice that the hooks rise up like something was weighing them down until the shotgun left. And when you go into the next room, the ceiling starts coming down on you. I mean, of course there is. What you're supposed to do is switch the shotgun you've got for a broken shotgun so you can take this one with you. But again, this is another one of these special cutscenes where Jill can't get out of the room with the ceiling coming down and it looks like it's just going to come down and kill her. Despite the fact that she's uh, the master of unlocking. Her unlocking power is there to solve traps. Yeah, I mean, she's not not omnipotent. No, but it seems that Barry is, because just as this trap's going off, Barry's outside the other door. Jill? Is that you, Jill? What happened? Barry, help me, please. The door won't open. Quick! Stay away from the door, Jill. I'm going to kick this door down. Hurry! This way! Oh, Barry! That was too close. You were almost a Jill sandwich. (laughs) You're right. Yes. Jill sandwich. Someone pointed out to me recently that it can be misheard as jibble. (laughs) It makes just as much sense. God, you were almost a Jill sandwich. He says this kind of laugh when he says Jill, though. He's like, you're almost a Jill sandwich. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Not exactly the reaction you'd expect from someone who's almost crushed to death by the ceiling. Yes. Thank you, Barry. Yeah, yeah. So after a scene with Barry, we now have the shotgun. This gun was a lot more handy than the handgun. Yeah, it's pair because the if the zombie gets close to you, you can shoot its head clean off. Yes, it can take down a zombie in one shot, which is very handy. Although you never really use it much for zombies, not till again, a later monster. Yeah, yeah, because it's pretty strong. This is the point where you come across your first puzzle of the game as well, in the art gallery. There's eight paintings of what I assume is the same guy in different life stages, mm-hmm. with little buttons underneath. You've got to press each switch in order before pressing the last one at you know, dead end where he's dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get that. If you get the order wrong, then the crows will peck you to death, mm-hmm. which is a really good puzzle. But this aspect of the story never comes up again. What do you mean? It's not something that's like ever explained as to why there's crows in an art gallery in this spooky house. I don't know, maybe he's a big fan of 
Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> My head canon is that these crows are like art critics. They've eaten all the hors d'oeuvres and drank all the prosecco and orange juice, and now they're just bored. So I mean, they just decide I'm going to pick a fight with someone, or they're the artists themselves, and they get so pissed off with Jill for misinterpreting their work. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, I mean, they'll tear apart anyone who dares to get it wrong. I'm pretty sure, you know, we've all met at least one person like that. See, what actually happens though is when you get the puzzle wrong, that it makes a note that startles the crows and they start coming off the perch to attack you. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's a bit like how you reacted to that Shock soundtrack thing. <laughs> when you solve the puzzle right though, you get the star crest. And in a room nearby, you'll find this door that's got four crest-sized holes. Right. So I think that is now your job is to collect all these crests to get out the back door of the mansion. <laughs> get out the back door. <laughs> so dirty. Oh my God. So I think this is your quest for now is to find all the crests so we can get out the back door of the mansion. The crest quest, if you will. Yes. <laughs> Going up to the east wing, which you now go from the ground floor to the first floor. We then come back into the main hall that we started in, but on the upper landing. And we run into Barry again. Hey, Belly Bunting, my favourite. Barry! Jill, what's going on? Any clues? No, but something's wrong with this house. Whoa, this hall is dangerous. Maybe it's better to secure our escape route first. There must be a back door somewhere. Let's try to find it first, shall we? Okay. Let's separate again. Just a moment. I found something. What is it? It's a weapon. It's really powerful, especially against living things. Better take it with you. But how about you, Barry? I have this. Thank you. I'll take this then. Now, he says he's giving you a weapon. But what he actually gives you is ammo for a weapon. This is our weapons expert. We found these launchable grenades for the bazooka and went, wow, this is a weapon. I don't know how we use it, but it's a weapon. Well done, Billy Bunting. Well done. I don't know why, but he says it so sexually. It's a weapon. It's really powerful. Especially against living things. Oh, let me put those bullets inside your bazooka. Mm. Yeah, there's something very strange about this scene. We can't keep saying that the voice acting is bad. But it is fun to point out how it's bad each time. Yeah. I think this is the first time that you got to see how the bad voice acting can bring levity to the tension of going through the mansion. Because I was really scared going through this game and getting super anxious. And then here comes Barry and Jill with their sublime dialogue. Just this oh, heave a sigh of relief. I don't need to be too scared. I mean, look at these two bozos, you know. <laughs> In a room nearby, though, you do find a gun that this ammo belongs to in the bazooka. Mm. You did have to nick off a dead body before the crows attacked you. Yeah, not my best moment, but oh well. Looting the bodies of my former teammates is, like, you know, not very fun. So yeah, we're 30 minutes into this game and now we've got another powerful gun. In fact, this is the second strongest gun in the entire game, the bazooka. I mean, it is just like a bazooka. It sends bomb things flying at your enemy. That you shoot at. But it has got something special with its ammo, doesn't it? Yeah, you can get ammo that explodes fire, ammo that explodes acid, and 
ammo that explodes explosions. <laughs> yes, the explosive rounds, the acid rounds, and the flame rounds. Yeah. The bazooka is exclusive to Jill's playthrough. Chris doesn't get the bazooka. He gets a different gun and not till later in the game. When nobody is speaking at all, the game is super tense. You don't really know what's behind every door. There could be a zombie. There could be a devil dog. Or two of them leaping out of a window in more than one corridor. Have fun figuring out which one those are. There could also be the existential dread of knowing the universe is a vast chaotic place and nothing you do matters. Or there could be a puzzle thing. You've got to do a bit of scavenger hunting. Find keys and crests and things to unlock different locations in the game. What doesn't help though is that your inventory is very limited. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. With a lot of games, you can like stuff your pockets with loads and loads of stuff. This game, Jill gets eight spaces. Yes, and your gun takes up one of them. And your bullets take up another. Yes, so you usually have one space for the gun and a second space just to cover your ammo. Some items you can combine, but most of them you can't. Thankfully, you get trunks in the save rooms So you can keep the items that you need a bit later on without carrying them in your pockets the whole time. Yeah, so if you've got an item you don't need right now, you just put it in your trunk. Like the survival knife went in your trunk at the start of the game and never came out. Yeah, pretty much. Also, you save the game using the typewriter. Yes, each save room will usually have a typewriter in it. You get very limited saves as well because you've got to use something called an ink ribbon. Yes. To save the game with the typewriter. Yes, each ink ribbon will do you for one save. As you save the game though, you actually do see it being typed out like it's on a typewriter. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Just casually taking some time in your spooky mansion with all these zombies hanging around to just type a bit in your diary. Down the other wing of the house now, and into the next save room. It was here that I was stepping back and letting you explore more. You find a room with a weird tentacle plant that's attacking from the centre of the room. You end up having to kill it by feeding chemicals into the pump. That's a very nice uh, plant and water pump you got there. Shame if someone poisoned it. Yes, it would be. (laughs) Not for you, though. You get to the other side of the plant and you get one of the very first keys to the game. Yeah. There are three keys to the mansion. The shield key and the armour key are the ones you get quite early on. And you also open one of the staffer's bedrooms where you got attacked by a zombie that was hiding in a closet that killed you. Because, I mean, Gorsh is just hiding in a closet, why not? When I came back to life, I went back into that room and I saw him coming. And then I managed to kill him. You had your shotgun on you this time, so you just blow his head off. Yeah, not in the good way. (laughs) After you killed him, though, you did get to read his diary. Yeah, throughout the game, you find different artefacts and files to read through as part of your investigation. It really helps tie things together and... The in-game storytelling is actually kind of low-key exceptional. Especially in the files like this that you find. Some of what you find is just hints for solving the puzzles, with a little bit of lore thrown in. But I'll be talking more about things that inform the story, including what's called the Keeper's Diary, Mm -hmm. which I find in this room. Mm -hmm. So this diary tells the story of an animal keeper of a... seedy secret facility who have been conducting experiments on animals and plants with this thing called the Mm T-virus. It's a diary from when he was infected by the virus and turns into a zombie and it documents his decline as the illness takes over 
it's a really great piece of storytelling, especially at the end where you can see how a zombie writes and thinks. May 19th, 1998. Fever gone, but itchy. Hungry and eat doggy food. Itchy, itchy. Scott came. Ugly face, so killed him. Tasty. The next page is just scrawled the words. Itchy, tasty. Like the symptoms of the illness and all he can think about Mm -hmm. is eating things. Really, really fascinating. Great storytelling. Mm. Makes up for the bad voice acting. (laughs) I remember watching an interview with Margaret Atwood and she said in that that it's not possible to write a story from the point of view of a zombie because they're not creatures with a grasp of language. And at that time, I wrote a story to challenge that from the point of view of a zombie. I got it in a hundred words. The last few pages of this story gets that across in five short sentences. What makes this really impactful is that this Keeper's Diary was written from the perspective of a zombie you've just killed. Yeah, because it's implied this is who was in the closet. It is the person in the closet. Yeah. These zombies aren't just monsters. They are human. Even if we feel their humanity's gone, they are still human, but they are very, very sick. And it's easy to forget that in like a movie or a video game because they're more often than not just cannon fodder. Yeah. And it's easy to dehumanise something when it is threatening your life mm-hmm. and scary. From here you descend the logic of the puzzles. You got the next key by solving a puzzle which involved playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata on a piano. Which is a very nice little song. Yeah, I told you it was coming back in our first episode. <laughs> yeah. Lovely piece of music by Beethoven. Or as he's also known, Germany's Samaragotchi. <laughs> Unlocked all the doors you could with both the keys, got the sun and wind crest, but in one of the rooms, you come around the corner and find a body lying on the ground. It's Richard from the Bravo team. Body still barely alive. Richard, what happened? Oh, Jill, this house is dangerous. There are terrible demons. Ouch! You're wounded. What kind of demon attacked you? It was a huge snake. And also, poisonous. Poisonous? Oh no. Richard, hold on. There is serum. Oh no. I should have brought some with me. No problem. I'll go and get it. Thanks. To save him, you're sent to the other side of the mansion to fetch the serum. Use it, and then he dies anyway. Dick. He does give you a radio though, which will help later. One of the things I found on my travels was the researcher's will. Mm -hmm. It's addressed to a loved one called Alma. I think it means soul in Spanish, like the Esperanza Spalding song, Mm -hmm. which, amazing, check it out. It's a suicide note that he hopes will be delivered to her, but might never be. Mm -hmm. He's watching his colleagues die and become zombies and decides to die with dignity rather than become one of them. Mm -hmm really powerful piece of storytelling. The gathering of articles and documents and files and letters is called epistolary storytelling. Mm -hmm. Examples of this include Dracula by Bram Stoker, Mm -hmm. Stephen King's Carrie, The Colour Purple by Alice Walker Mm -hmm. and the SCP Foundation. This is a technique that's been used since the 18th century. The film Dangerous Liaisons the one with Glenn Close and John Malkovich, where they play French aristocrats who fuck up people's lives, is adapted from the first known epistolary novel. 
There's some people who go through the playthrough and don't bother with it. I recommend that you do. Just look through every document and collect every file. It really adds to the game. Mm-hmm. And then there's a giant snake. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are now going to encounter the first boss of the game. As you enter the attic, you see at the back of the room, a big giant snake comes out of a fireplace and it starts attacking you. When I say giant, it is like twice the size of Jill when it's kind of got its head up. Please cue the music because it still sends fear into my veins. His name is Yon, apparently. What? I keep running everywhere that the snake is called Yon. Which is funny because it does uh, not make you Yon. It makes you deeply, deeply awake. We need to go into this room and fight this snake, which... uh, It took me loads of attempts to beat this. Yeah, this is one of the first times where you have to learn how to manoeuvre around the room. And uh, I had not learned to manoeuvre about a room. No, you had not. We did practice for a little while before we went and fought him. Which did make things a bit easier. The word a bit doing a lot of legwork here. It was guarding a puzzle item that I needed, but I kid you not, there was a point in my playthrough where I threw the PS1 control at Sandro, covered my head and curled into a ball on the couch. So you're in the room alone with this thing. This small room with five pillars. And Jill controls like if the past the butter robot from Rick and Morty was hot. <laughs> Truly a great thing for someone who's already scared shitless. We had a cheeky weekend away planned for my birthday, so thankfully I got a good break from the creature, but it was always there, in that fireplace, waiting for me. I eventually managed to beat it through divine intervention. It wasn't dead, but at least I didn't have to see it for a while. Once you shoot it enough, the scary music stops, and it does slither back to his hole with a real air of, well, I know where I'm not wanted. It slithers away to fight another day. Hooray? Yeah. Out of all the things you could name your bloody snake, you go for yawn. I I don't understand why. Say the line, Jen. (laughs) You invoked it now. Who names their snake yawn? Yes. (laughs) Fuck you. We were so close to not having that this episode. Thank you, Jen. I wanted to kill this joke, Sandro. I wanted to kill it. Stop being so fucking judgy in names then. (laughs) (laughs) with the snake now beat we now have all four crests we can get out the back of the mansion thank fuck for that there aren't levels like in the platformers and first person shooters we've covered but different locations like earthbound or pokemon Mm -hmm. i found the whole thing a bit harder to navigate at first but there is a map in game you find the maps on your travels so be sure again keep picking things up as you go it doesn't take up an inventory space, thank God. No, thankfully. I use Sandro as a sat-nav on my playthrough because... Yes. Yeah, if there's ever a fire in the Spencer Mansion, I could go through that place with my eyes closed, it's fine. <laughs> it really, really helped. Getting out the back door of the mansion, we now end up in the courtyard. When you get outside, your radio starts beeping, and you get a call from Brad, never forget I ditched you all, Vickers. <laughs> He's calling to see if there's any survivors, but he can't seem to hear you. It's kind of lucky that you couldn't hear me considering I would give him a piece of my fucking mind. But now that we're out of the mansion and we fought through all of the zombie dogs in the courtyard. Because we needed more of those, didn't we, Sandro? Yes, we did. We then get to the other mansion on the property grounds called the guardhouse. 
God, these people have obscene amounts of money. Yeah, I know. <laughs> these people are quite literally eating the rich. <laughs> <laughs> they've, point, that point. they've seized the means of production. <laughs> what, the means of production being eating people? Yes. All right. Eat the landowners. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have a smaller mansion for you to explore, solve, and get the shite scared out of you. Killer wasps that chase you out of the room. Giant spiders that are hanging out in the billiard room. Just chilling out, playing pool, as yeah. spiders do. Yeah, we're just missing some jazz music in there. Spiders known for liking jazz music. Are they? No. Oh. I don't think so. I'm sure some scientist out there has done research on it, but I wouldn't know where. You didn't seem to be a fan of either of those insect-based monsters. Yeah, not really. And I usually like spiders as well. Even the huge tarantulas. I remember when I was a kid, I got to hold some Amazonia. The furry little things are so cute. (laughs) When exploring the guardhouse, you do find a special book called The Plant 42 Report. It's a tome that tells you of this massive plant that's growing in the guardhouse. That you've not met yet. Yes, this will be our next boss. And yes, you should be shitting yourself right now. Uh, yeah, that sums up how I was feeling, pretty much. You go into the flooded basement of the guardhouse, and you end up in the company of mutant sharks. Because why not? Yes. That you don't have to fight these either. You have to run out of the room, turn on the pump, and then you get to watch them flop around helplessly. See, it's a bit of a shame, you know, I wanted to put them out of their misery, but the game wouldn't let me. No, the shark was too strong to be killed. Mm, Poor thing. I usually quite like sharks as well. They're cute. I've never been in a cage with one, I'm sure wouldn't be a great idea. But you know, they're cute wee things. In one of the rooms in the basement though, you do also find the roots to Plant 42. This comes in handy when you go upstairs and you learn how to make a little concoction called the V-Jolt. Earlier on in the game, we killed its little brother. That little thing we poisoned with the chemicals. Plant 42 is the same plant, but bigger and badder. Yes, supposedly. So instead of finding a chemical randomly lying around, we have to make our own. Mm -hmm. V-Jolt. V-Jolt sounds like an energy drink that would be banned in Europe. (laughs) After reading a very ominous information slip about the bastard, And of course the room keeping the chemicals is guarded by an army of fucking hornets. Anything's possible if you believe, I guess. Vigil kills the roots, but it doesn't kill the plant completely. You've still got to fight this bad boy. Yes. What the Vigil does, it does take out a lot of its health, but you still have to do some work yourself. Yeah, yeah. Plant 42 is just like the tomato plant in my mum's polytunnel. (laughs) How so? It's taken over the whole place, pretty much. (laughs) After worrying last year that, oh, it's probably not going to produce anything then, during the heatwave, proceeds to take over pretty much the whole place. Yes, and attacks anyone who enters the polytunnel. Pretty much. I mean, (laughs) T-virus, tomato virus. (laughs) So, all armed up for the fight, with your bazooka holding the flame rounds, all your healing items, you enter the room and kill it in four shots. (laughs) You smashed this first time. Which I wasn't expecting, actually. You were wanting to finish for the night. I was like, just try fighting him for now so you know what you're encountering next time we play. Yeah, I was expecting it to be like more difficult than Yawn the Giant Snake. Yes. Turns out fighting a plan isn't the most threatening thing in the game. So after your epic battle, (laughs) you get the helmet key. The final key you need for the first mansion. Oh yeah! 
Yeah. Before we haul our arse all the way back over to that mansion, we get an encounter with Wesker. Wesker! Jill, so you're safe. That's what I was going to say. Where on earth have you been? You disappeared from the hall all of a sudden. I'm sorry, but I have my reasons. Perhaps you guys have met them? It was all I could do to protect myself against those strange creatures. Is that right? Anyway, it's good to see you're safe. Jill, our first priority is to get out of here. Yes, you're right. Now, there are a lot of rooms in that mansion that we can't get into because they're locked up. I have been looking around for clues. Okay, I'll go to the other house and see if I can find any clues. Will you do that? I'm counting on you. Ah, yes, Mr. I wear my sunglasses as Night Wesker. Yes. Uh-huh. Who's just in the guardhouse being vaguely ominous. Just, you know, as you do. Which I can only assume is just what he's like to be around. <laughs> he's that guy in your uni class who just sits there, like, not saying very much of anything, but, like, I mean, he just knows that he's smarter than you. And you know it! We also get another call from Chickenheart Brad Vickers. But he still can't hear you. Thanks for your fucking call, Brad. I don't know, maybe should have kept the helicopter down for a bit longer, Brad. Right, back to the mansion now. And as we enter the mansion, we are interrupted by a cutscene. Some monster stalks you through the very paths you just walked. And opens the door you just closed with a big, long, green arm. This is your first encounter with the Hunter. So, they're probably the most difficult enemy in the game, aside from your bosses. Mm-hmm. They look like if the super anti-hero Venom was, like, scary and ate people. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's already kind of scary, but, like, I don't think he eats people. Yeah, he is this giant green monster with long claws. If the Grinch was made of slime. Yeah. They're super green and slimy and really could steal Christmas if they really put their minds to it. (laughs) Yeah, they're going to be your new annoyance as you traverse the mansion since you killed all the zombies last time. Annoyance? That might be a little bit of an understatement, Sandro. How would you word it then? Menace. (laughs) Back to Spider-Man, aren't we? That menace. (laughs) All those shotgun shells that you've been saving up are now coming into play. Yes. At this point, I think he retired the handgun and just took the shotgun everywhere. Yeah, because, I mean, the handgun is not going to do shit against those guys. No. They're not going to affect these creatures whatsoever. Yeah, whereas the shotgun knocks them back and gives you a bit of breathing room. Yes. We do have some unfinished business to take care of in this mansion. We have to end Yon. (sighs) Now, at this point, I gave you two options. You could either go fight Yon with your bazooka, which would have done the job, Or we could go and hunt for the best weapon in the game. You chose the latter option. Yes. Which involved you having to get to the whole other wing and getting the Colt Python. It was like a teeny weeny pistol type thing. Teeny weeny my arse. No it wasn't. It it looked small in the things. It was bigger than the pistol. Was it? Yeah. The helmet key led me to a small room full of taxidermied animals straight out of Psycho. Yep. A pamphlet lies on a little end table by a seat by the fireplace. I love how the people who run this company are so evil. They enjoy looking at their evil plans for a bit of light reading with their pipe and a brandy. (laughs) In the most evil room in the house. The room with all the dead heads. (laughs) Yeah. And they leave it for my reading pleasure. Yes. I'll summarise it here. 
We at Stars were lured to the mansion to fight with the B-O-W-S, whatever that is, and more subjects of their experiments. I think they're probably just bows. The scientists have got to collect two of each embryo per bow type, including all species except Tyrant, who will, uh, we will visit in a little while. And then they're going to destroy the building like it's all an accident. I'm wondering when the scientists come in to get all the samples, how that happens. But okay, in short, in short. It's a trap! Yes, this is the massive evil plan of Umbrella. You can kind of see why I say it's evil for evilness sake. Hey, um, we need some people to fight our big bad monsters. You know who we're going to call in? Um, how about the police? Book it. <laughs> With a new gun in hand, we went back to the other side of the mansion to go and make ourselves some snakeskin boots. Yeah, I mean, I wished I could have equipped those snakeskin boots, but... We go to a room in the mansion that has another fireplace. Interestingly, that fireplace, if you look at the map, it adjoins the fireplace in the attic. That Yon came out of the last time. Ah, oh, right. And this is where you get your second fight with the big snake. It only took you three tries. Which surprised me, actually. I thought we'd have a much harder time with it. We did have a stronger gun for it this time, though. Yeah, that makes sense. Eventually you beat it using the Colt Python. Yeah. After I finally killed the fucker, it dissolved into a snake-shaped pile of bramble jelly and left a big hole in the floor. Mm-hmm. Billy Bunting comes in steps over it and asks Jill, have you found anything interesting? So I'm sitting reflecting on my time with the game with the zombie researchers who've left notes everywhere, the devil dogs those crows who stay in the art gallery because by the way there's an art gallery the man-eating tomato plants, the giant spiders that explode into little spiders a piano that opens a door for some reason a nest of killer hornets whatever the fuck those hunter creatures are, sharks in the basement And Billy, I just killed a giant snake when you were outside of the door and it left a great fucking hole in the floor. So, oh boy, Jill and Billy are going to have a lot to talk about. Yes, but I can't see very well. How about going down to check by yourself? Raccoon City's elite police force, everybody. (laughs) We don't care about the snake. The snake is dead. But we have a hole in the floor. We have to inspect the hole. Not the bramble jam? We don't need jam. We're fine. We've got hole. Okay. Barry conveniently is carrying a rope they can use to lower you down. I'd mock, but we were carrying fertilizer around earlier, so who are we to judge? Yeah, that's true. When he lowers you down, though, he drops the rope. <sighs> Good going, Mr. Bunting. And he says he's going to come back with more rope, and you've got control of Jill for this point. Now, you are not signposted this in any way, but this is actually a choice between the good ending and the bad ending. Through some comedy of reasons that I could probably justify with enough time, money, and access to the Star Wars writers. <laughs> this choice of if you will wait for Barry to drop the rope, or if you go down and explore the mansion basement instead, will somehow decide if Barry lives or dies at the end of the game. I don't know how, but that's what this choice does. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like Barry maybe needs Jill's guidance and competence to get him through this fucking game. <laughs> what ends up happening instead is that he comes back with a rope and he gives you a passcode to explore the last part of the mansion. It's here that you'll find the first of three MO discs, which you're going to need to save Chris come the end of the game. You also find a battery which you're going to use in the courtyard to get into the sewers. Oh yeah, the sewers, yeah. 
With one last goodbye to the mansion, you won't be missed. We go back to the courtyard and enter the sewers. In the sewer system, you come face to face with your good old partner, Barry Burton. You have the choice to either let Barry go first or if you go first. Again, this is a stealth decision which decides the ending if Barry lives or dies. Not here, of course, later in the game. What do you mean, of course? How's anyone supposed to know that, of course? If they said that now, that would make sense, and this game hasn't got a track record of doing that. And here you find the last of the Bravo team members, Enrico. Is that Jill? Is that voice Enrico's? Yeah. You're alive! Wait there. Are you with anybody, Jill? What? Oh, yes. Enrico! So, Barry and Jill together. Are you all right, Enrico? The stars are doomed. Someone is a traitor. Everything was plotted from the start by Umbrella. Enrico! Yeah, so as he's about to tell you who he is, he gets shot by someone off screen. You chase them down and you can't find them. I mean, I've got a vague idea of who it might possibly be, but we'll reveal that later. See, I know who you're thinking of, and that would make sense, but ask me this. How did he see him in the dark with his sunglasses? Ah! I mean, look at everything else that's happened in the game so far. Really not the biggest glaring (laughs) problem with this story. Onwards, we then come across the fourth boss. The even bigger giant spider. Hooray! More spiders! This is one of the points where you did open a door, scary music starts playing, so you turned around and left straight away. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It's like, knocked right out of that place. You went to fetch your bazooka and came back, still carrying fire rounds from the fight with Plant 42. Mm-hmm. You shot the spider with the flame rounds and killed it in one shot. Which surprised me, actually. I remember this fight being more challenging than this. One shot! It's kind of like the time I walked arse backwards into the treasure in Secret of Monkey Island. Yeah! <laughs> I just had this being a bigger problem that you just breezed through. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I never have enough fire rounds at this point, I don't know. Maybe. This leaves only one boss left to go in the game, and I promise this last one is an actual bastard. Once we're on the other side, we get another MO desk, and we get to a fountain that hides a secret set of stairs that takes you to the secret laboratory. Secret laboratory? Aye. So, yeah, secret lab under your house. Do you think it adds value to your property? Hmm, I guess it depends how well designed the secret laboratory is. I guess in this day and age you could probably sell it as a second home. (laughs) Probably. Can we want to have a secret laboratory in our house? Just under the house, you know? You know, just in case you need it. Uh, good luck getting planning permission for that. It's under the house, no one knows, it's fine. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. <laughs> so you go through the floors and solve some more puzzles, including one that involved runes that you managed to solve before the game made it easier for you. Yeah, it was quite a good puzzle, I liked it. Reading an artifact in the room helped a great deal with that puzzle. Mm-hmm. Some nice biblical allusions in there. It's a letter from one of the scientists to his partner, Ada. Interestingly, Ada will become a character in the second game. Ah, yeah, I knew that name sounded familiar. We find Slade at some point in our time at the lab, and in one room we find a projector for them. Yes. The presentation is titled Umbrella Bio-Organic Weapon Official Report. Truly rolls off the tongue. Yeah, that's what the B.O.W. was. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, B.O.W., yeah, yeah. The U and two of the L's in Umbrella are both in italics, while the rest of the letters are not. Oh, there's no saying how much that fucking bugs me. This is a whole organisation which are testing on live subjects, killing people around town, and have lured the police in for a trap to kill them too. But that is the most evil thing they've done. (laughs) 
I mean, they sure are testing. Testing our patience, that is. How can you expect these fuckers to design a chemical weapon when you can't even design a fucking logo properly? Or is that part of their evil plan? We're going to put this on our slides because we hate you all. <laughs> <laughs> this whole umbrella thing reminds me of that scene with Debbie and the Adams Family Values. I don't enjoy hurting anybody. I don't like guns or bombs or electric chairs. But sometimes people just won't listen. And so I have to use persuasion. And slides. We get information on the different creatures we've faced and what they're called, most of which don't really matter right now. But the one that sticks out to me is Tyrant equals T002. This is the one creature I haven't faced yet. So this really does send a shiver down my spine. Put a pin in it, we'll get to him shortly. One thing I will talk about here is talked about how we experimented on the dogs to create the zombie dog, which we called Cerberus, and then the shark to create Neptune. I'm sitting here wondering, what did they test on to make the hunters? Did they capture Blanca? The tyrant that you've read, though, this is going to become a running theme in Resident Evil games. Every game has to have you fighting some mad lad who is a giant walking weapon, always tyrant-esque. Always super buff. Always super buff and always this giant growing mess. Six Semper Tyrannis. Works for the Roman Empire. Works for explaining how every Resident Evil game ends. In the next slides, we get information about the researchers. Well, R&D staff, research and development staff. Mm -hmm. We have what looks like an ageing boys own tribute act. (laughs) Or uh, bootleg U2. And Billy Idol. And when I say Billy Idol, I mean Wesker. Yes. (laughs) This is one that's got the slicked back blonde hair and the black sunglasses on. Yeah, because of course Mr. I wear my sunglasses at night man was a villain the whole time. If the Scooby-Doo gang managed to trap and tie up the giant snake, they'd unmask it to find Wesker. (laughs) Also throughout the laboratory, we're finding these machines that you can feed the MO discs into that will give you passcodes. They're actually biblical passages. Not really important. But these are what you need to unlock a door to the jails at the back of the lab. They've added biblical stuff because they're playing God. Uh, Fair point, actually, yeah. It's all thematic. They know what they're doing. You may have been wondering, uh, where's Chris been all this time? He really is a damsel in distress who was indisposed for most of the game. Yes, he's been chilling in this jail at the back of the lab since the start of the game, apparently. And, you know, you need all those passcodes to rescue Chris. We can't get his door open for now. But at least we now know where he is. Behind the door of the passcodes is another locked door. It's good preventative measures to stop break-ins. Or breakouts in this case. Mm. We continue exploring the lab, finding the last save room in the game, and then onward to the power room. Mm, oh no. We also find another new monster down here called the Chimeras. Which didn't appear in the slides. No, they didn't. They're like if Licorice became sentient and wanted to start eating meat yeah if licorice was attacking you with all the vile and bile that you know it's filled with (laughs) you brought your bazooka with you and after a few encounters with them you eventually started to put them down with ease oh i see with ease you got killed like four times within the first room of the power room and then you did just one sprint where you got through all of them no trouble but i was scared it's a horror game you're supposed to be yeah but like you end up kind of like doing the whole fight or flight thing i did uh, neither in froze <laughs> they are the real progenitors to a monster you get a lot more of in the second game called the liquors ah liquor ish <laughs> yeah 
You go through the power room, you turn on the elevator, and before you get on the elevator to the final floor of the lab, you run into Barry. And uh, we turn a corner and, oh, look, it's Max Headroom. And by Max Headroom, I mean Wesker. (laughs) He tells us in great detail about his dastardly plan. Wesker? You did a fine job, Barry. Just as I thought. I think you should stay away from Barry, Jill. I hear that his wife and two daughters will be in danger if he doesn't do everything I tell him to. You are so cruel. Well, you don't have to worry about anything, because you'll be free from this world very soon, Jill. Why do you have to destroy stars? That's Umbrella's intention. This laboratory has been engaging in dangerous experiments, and recently an accident has occurred. Anyway, this disaster cannot be made public. That's why having stars nosing about is so inconvenient. So you're a slave of Umbrella now, along with these virus monsters. I think you misunderstand me, Jill. To me, the monsters you mention mean nothing. I'm going to burn all of them together with this entire laboratory. I must complete my mission as ordered by Umbrella. Barry, go up on the ground and wait there. Barry? Barry's such a fool. He'll be under the control of Umbrella forever. How come both Umbrella and you can intimidate him by taking his family as hostages? Umbrella? Well, I intimidated him, but it had nothing to do with Umbrella. I just used him for my personal purposes, though both you and Barry seem to think I was following orders from Umbrella. So you're planning something else? If you succeeded in developing the world's most powerful biological weapon, What would you do? What if you were in charge? You must stop this now. You're a brave girl. But if I were you, I wouldn't give up such a big discovery. You guys are idiots. No one understands its real value. So, you're going to steal all the research? (laughs) Better yet, I'm going to show you the tyrant. Oh no, it's not very well written. No, it's not. I was like really praising up the writing and I could excuse some of the cutscenes, but I'm sorry, this was heinous. Uh, It is so bad. Right, uh, I'll try and describe it how I heard it. Mm -hmm. He wants to destroy the base as per Umbrella's orders. Okay, cool. Got you so far. Something about showing you his ultimate biological weapon. Mm -hmm. I'm sure all the ladies call it that. (laughs) I'm sure he wishes the ladies would call it that. (laughs) He's intimidating Barry into trapping Jill and the other stars people because they're going to foil Umbrella's plans, even though it was Umbrella's plans to have them there in the first place. And he's holding Billy's wife and kid hostage. I mean, Wesker betraying me, that's fair. He might as well have traitor written in his five head, but not Barry. My Barry Bunting, no! All I could do was watch in shock and horror. But Umbrella didn't ask Wesker to hold Barry's family hostages. He just did it for shits and giggles. I can't emphasise enough how stupid that decision is, but okay. He's holding Billy's wife and kid hostage. Where are they? Who knows? Never comes up again. And... Jill makes a point and then he says, well, actually, I'm not a slave, just like those vicious monsters, because I don't care if the virus monsters are destroyed. Don't think the zombie shark would be particularly devastated 
if the giant snake died, but sure, Wesker, you let Jill's rhetoric go over your stupid hair. I think Wesker wants to keep Tyrant for some reason. That's the only thing he wants to keep. He wants to show his ultimate weapon to Jill first. Yeah, and then he says something like, what would you do with a biological weapon? Putting some sort of moral thing as if he's not more than happy to let everything blow up. And he didn't get a ballerina Barbie for his 10th birthday and <laughs> became a black widow and murdered his three husbands. Uh, okay, that last one's from the Adams family values. <laughs> but honestly, I wouldn't put it past Wesker to go on a homicidal rage and burn his parents' house down because he got a Malibu Barbie for his birthday. <laughs> no. As Wesker's about to march you at gunpoint into the next room to check out his weapon. And laugh maniacally. Who comes out behind him and knocks him the fuck out but Mr. Billy Bunting himself, Barry. Oh! Oh. Barry! Sorry, Jill. How was your family? Uh, I was listening to what you and Wesker were talking about. I wish I realized it earlier. I thought it must have something to do with Umbrella, you know. So it's all been masterminded by him. But it's good that you know that now. Anyway, let's get out of this house first. Jill! Yes, what? Do you have any idea what Wesker was going to show you at the back of this place? Well, he was talking about the world's most powerful biological weapon. Called Tyrant or something, I think. Do you think we could see Tyrant now? Barry, you're so optimistic. It would look bad for stars if we let such a dangerous creature run loose. Maybe you're right. Let's go then. Barry just like pops him over the head with his gun. <laughs> it's just so fucking funny. <laughs> Top notch. Great comic timing. Great comic timing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now, okay, we've beat Wesker. We now don't have to face the tyrant. Now let's go check out the tyrant. Wait, what? What? <laughs> yeah, like all I could do was scream at the TV, Get out, you fucking idiots! They're going to destroy the base anyway! Just run! But no! Oh, God. Oh, no, no these guys got to take it on because like, we've got to destroy the ultimate biological weapon. <laughs> I know, I know. Anyway, so you go into the back room and you find this giant ugly looking monster being kept in a big vat of goo he's basically like super bulky and buff like he's been lifting a bunch of weights and one arm has been working on those biceps or whatever they're called and then like in the other arm he's got like this weird monster claw fin thing the size of his deeply muscular thighs. Looks like a scythe, yeah. You know, looking like pretty scary so far, you know, with some pulsating veins and sharp teeth and like dead eyes. And uh, his heart on his shoulder. We're looking in images we kind of like this. His heart's on the other side of his chest. And like, I'm just thinking to myself, like, that's what rib cages are for? The rib cage is a wonderful thing. It stops the lungs and heart from being punctured. I'm assuming these people are somewhat capable biologists and you learn pretty early on in your studies that, yes, rib cage, that's what that's for. We're going to keep the heart in there. Or maybe we're not. We're just going to have the rib cage 
pulsing on his shoulder. <laughs> the ultimate biological weapon, everyone. I-, I don't know what these people were thinking. We don't know what Barry's thinking either as he turns off the goo machine. Is there not like some other life support thing that you could just turn off? No, no, just the minute you turn off the goo, everything's fine. Because then the tyrant wakes up and smashes the glass. Breaks the fuck out of there. <laughs> and immediately knocks out Barry. Barry, the weapons expert, is not there to help you in your fight against this like big swole person who's get like just despite having like the biggest legs is the smallest wee bum you've ever seen. <laughs> but uh, that's besides the point. This thing is like twice the size of Jill, who's like a tiny little woman in a berry. And I'm thinking to myself, right, how am I going to do this? I know I've fought a giant snake, right, and big spiders. And a killer plant. But like, this is supposed to be the ultimate biological weapon. What am I going to do? <laughs> the only thing you can do is just run away, make space and shoot him. Yeah, you had to tell me what to do with that one. Because I was completely flapping around like an idiot. He just walks towards you menacingly. So all you really have to do is just get to the next corner. Turn around, shoot and run to the next corner. I mean, it sure does help that he's decided to just take a stroll towards your general direction. Yeah, and it also helps that this room is basically a giant square corridor with giant vats in the middle. So all he can ever do is just walk down one path of the square. He is basically chasing you around the tank. It's like a Scooby-Doo monster chase, but you're shooting things. With enough shots, even the tyrant goes down to the Desert Eagle. He was quite a bit harder to beat than the snake. My ability to control the game did not get that much better Mm -hmm. since the start of the game. So sometimes I would accidentally run towards him. (laughs) Sometimes I'd be able to run underneath him and dodge him. But other times he'd just like catch me and just skewer me with that monster claw, which is, uh, as the kids say, not poggers. I felt a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, the ultimate biological weapon was clearly not so ultimate if... I, who can barely coordinate herself around a room, managed to beat the tyrant. Real underdog story, proper David and Goliath type thing. Great. You go back to wake up Barry and the two of you leg it. Yeah, because the building is now set to self-destruct. Yes, because Wesker's disappeared when you get outside the room and suddenly you hear an announcement that the building is going to self-destruct. It really reminds me of that scene in Spaceballs. (laughs) The triggering system has now been activated. All researchers and guards should take cover immediately. Unlock all groups for evacuation. So you're running out of this place now and the exciting music is now playing as you're making your escape. We were about to run at the building and then I realised I might have forgotten something. <laughs> Who could we have forgot? Oh, Chris! Yes, now that the building is set to explode, the door to his specific cell has been unlocked. If you didn't get the MO discs, then the door to the door to his cell won't unlock. Right. So that's what the MO discs have done, is that's how you've saved Chris. But in any case, like, when you get there, Chris is just, like, chilling in that cell. Like, he didn't think to open the door to get out. And don't say that, like, you know, oh, he didn't know. The woman in the announcer thing said that all the doors are unlocked. Yeah, he didn't try his. He didn't try his? Okay, sure. You don't get to be a damsel in distress by being smart. We know this. <laughs> yeah, but you go get him. And now Barry, Jill and Chris all make their escape. 
as we get to the door out, I see a battery in the ground. Thought nothing of it until I realised that that's the battery that's needed for this automatic door. Mm-hmm. My inventory's full at this point, and so I've got to get rid of an item. So I had to run back down, get the ladder down the stairs to the last inventory box, and Chris and Barry just follow me down there? To be fair, the reason why the game is making you pick up a battery is to make sure you have a slot in your inventory. It's trying to make sure you've not caused a situation where you can't complete it. Yeah, yeah, there's a reason for it. But I just find the idea of me having to go back inside the exploding building funny. Yes, because thankfully they don't start the actual timer until you put the battery in the door. Yes. A timer does start and gives you three minutes to escape the complex. We get to the exit and then Chris and Barry have to stay behind and fight off some monsters. Oh no, you must be kidding. After we've come all the way here. Ladies first. Go first, Jill. But Chris... Give me a chance to play nice guy. Okay, i leave it up to you. See you again at the heliport. Oh wow, they sound super nonchalant considering the building's gonna blow up and mm. there's monsters coming at them. And Chris is all like, ladies first. <laughs> ladies first. We know he's not the brains of the operation, Jen. What can I say? Uh, not the brains of the operation, indeed. So we go up the elevator and we get out to a helipad. We set off a flare, which we use to signal Brad, who now finally gets our attention to come and land on the heliport. I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if he just didn't land in the helipad and left us to die. Then there's a rumble, and I swore that Wesker was going to be the final boss (laughs) to resume his monologue. And then, what, bursts through the floor like that coolie jug, but another tyrant. Where did that come from? It's the same one. He just wasn't dead when you killed him earlier. But like, did the bullets? You now have a fight with him in the helipad and you might notice your bullets don't work on him. Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, ultimate biological weapon and all. I think he was just playing dead earlier because he was a bit bored of fighting in that room. Fighting is not really the word. He was just strolling menacingly and swiping. That's not exactly fighting. So yeah, now you're stuck in the heliport with him, running around while he's charging to take swipes at you. (laughs) Yeah. All of your healing items are getting used up at this point. Yeah, you told me to just run him around in circles until time runs out. Yes. When there's only about 30 or 20 seconds left, Brad chucks down a rocket launcher. Why he didn't throw this down earlier is fucking beyond me, but he did eventually drop this rocket launcher. It's the most useful thing he's done in the game so far. You had like 15 seconds left at this point. You run to the rocket launcher, pick it up, scarf a healing item for good luck. But before you could fire it, the tyrant took a big swipe and sent you across the map. Three seconds left. You steady yourself as he rushes you. Two seconds. You take aim. One second left. Which actually is not how it's supposed to go in the game. No, you're supposed to have a bit more time, but you literally played it until the last second. God, I was watching this just ripping my hair out. Like, Jesus, Jen, fire! But I mean, again, right up until the last second, I couldn't do the tank controls. When I say I struggled, I'm not exaggerating. No, you're not. (laughs) Thankfully, hitting the fire button ends the whole game and you get the shot of the rocket launcher firing towards the tyrant and blowing him to pieces. See, it goes from three different angles, which made me think that it was three different rockets I shot. No, it's just the one. 
I, I can never unsee this, but there's one where Tyrant is clearly peeking the camera. Yeah, no, he like looks across to the camera like, <sighs> fine then, guess I've got to die now. It's just one of those days. <laughs> you, Barry and Chris, get on the helicopter and you finally leave the mansion as it blows up behind you. Jill has saved the day. Umbrella is defeated. The monsters are destroyed. And everything's going to be okay. And there's no such thing as sequels. Absolutely not. Sequels are just not a thing. The final cutscene is it's just filmed actors again. And we're in the helicopter that saved us. Chris is looking all like accomplished, like he's climbed a big hill. And Jill is asleep in his shoulder, exhausting from doing all the heavy lifting in this game. Barry is inspecting the ammunition of his gun. There's worse ways to pass the time. Hey, never underestimate the importance of keeping a clean gun. And then the credits roll and all the highlights of the plot just happen in front of you as the credits roll. Like it's the opening of a sitcom or something. Yeah, and it's just amazing rock music playing, which is very triumphant for where you are in this game. Does really sell the escape and the... And then we have a look back at your best bits. It was very good. It was a good tune. I really enjoyed it. And I felt good that I'd finally completed this game. Yes, you have beaten Resident Evil. I beat Resident Evil! Or at least one leg of Resident Evil. I didn't do much of the other leg. No. That's where I was going to come in. Now, as you finished the game, you were awarded the special key because you saved both Barry and Chris. Yay! Special key! This gets you an alternate costume should you choose to replay the game. Which uh, I would not. There is another reward you can get. If you can beat this game in under three hours, and just for context, Jen's playthrough took about six hours, I think. Mm -hmm. You get to unlock another special weapon where you can play the entire game with a rocket launcher with infinite ammo. Yeah. It's not an easy task to beat this game in three hours. It takes someone with superb knowledge of the layout, puzzles, solutions, and monsters to get the job done so quickly. So are you, basically. Yes, basically me. (laughs) When I told you in the first half that I replayed this entire game over the summer and beat the Chris campaign, I beat the Chris campaign in two hours and 51 minutes. Ooh, very nice. So when I did my Chris playthrough, which I said I was going to do, I got to do it with the rocket launcher and creaming everything in this game in one shot i mean it took some tension out of the playthrough somewhat absolutely but it's also cathartic watching everything explode yeah that's true we're not going to retell the entire game again as there's a lot of similarities between the two playthroughs Mm -hmm. so let's just discuss the main differences between jill and chris barry is missing from chris's campaign he just fucks off at the start and is never seen again he is a sir not appearing in this playthrough yes and instead he meets up with Bravo Team's rookie field medic, Rebecca Chambers. Yeah, you find her pretty early in the game in the first save room. Yes. She looks and sounds like she's 13. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know how a 13-year-old get working for a special police force, but hey, that's anime logic, I suppose. Unlike Barry, in the Chris playthrough, you actually get to play as Rebecca. Yeah, I mean, I joke, but she is very essential to Chris's playthrough and makes up for a lot of his deficiencies, which there is a lot of. Yes, there's twice when Chris finds himself in trouble and relies on Rebecca to get him out of the problems. Very talented and has, like, earned her place, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, if you get attacked in the attic by the snake, it's up to Rebecca to go fetch the serum. Mm -hmm. 
And when you fight Plan 42, it's up to Rebecca to mix the V-Jol. When you actually go to mix the V-Jol, I'm expecting, oh, Chris is a manly man. He'll have no problem with it. Jill managed it, so, you know. But um, the dialogue comes up that he can't handle chemicals. Yes, every time you try to touch where he goes, Chris can't handle chemicals. <laughs> Doing a proper bimbo thing and talking of himself in the third person. <laughs> <laughs> See, I hear it as being like, he can't handle this, man. He just he just can't outhandle this. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, what, does he get sensitive skin? Did he, like, just have his nails done or something? Like, what? He just gets Rebecca Chambers to do Jill stuff. See, the problem was is that Chris spent his entire high school science class stuffing nerds like Wesker into the locker. <laughs> and shagging all the Jill Valentines. Exactly. He has no time for science class. <laughs> Chris is kind of useless in his playthrough. He cannot play the piano, so we need Rebecca to do the Moonlight Sonata puzzle. <laughs> this is a recurring theme, in case you've not guessed. He can't use a lockpick, so he needs to find more keys than Jill needed to find. He couldn't find the bazooka. No. He only gets six inventory items, instead of Jill's glorious eight. Which is remarkable, considering it's supposed to be women's clothing that's made with no pockets. <laughs> he does get a flamethrower, which is exclusive to him, but he's only allowed to use it in the sewers. Like with the shotgun at the start of the game, there's hooks that lock the door, but you have to put the flamethrower back before you can leave the sewers. I'm not going to say that's because of his incompetence. That's just bad luck. Mm -hmm. I would have quite liked to see Chris with the flamethrower for a bit longer. We are ragging on him for being incompetent, but it's because his playthrough is supposed to be more difficult. Yes, his playthrough is the harder mode. He does have more health than Jill, so he can take more damage before he needs to heal up. Mm Mm-hmm. That's one of his few bonuses. Yeah, I mean, he has to have some saving graces. Also, I don't know why I said at the start of this that Jill had all the bad voice acting. There are some honkers in Chris's playthrough. Play away, DJ. Whoa! What is it? What? Oh! Oh, no! (laughs) Chris! Rebecca, no, it's no use. Yeah... So much for him, we got to the root of the problem. I would never work for a company like Umbrella. And Wesker, you were formerly with Umbrella. No, the worst happened with a tyrant virus. I lost some of my STARS team members because of it. You killed them with your own hands. Did you kill Enrico? Enrico? I'll destroy the STARS myself. I'm sorry for my lack of manners, but I'm not used to escorting men. Look at those monsters! Let me take care of them! But... Chris, get in contact with Brad right away! Okay! I'll hold back the monsters! Okay, I trust you. Trust me! (laughs) My best bit. Chris looks at Tyrant, and there's a moment as he's looking up in this cutscene that suggests fear and anguish and then he bursts out laughing. Is this? That's right. This is the ultimate life form. Tyrant! (laughs) Chris? Stop it. Wesker, you're pitiful. This is your saviour? You say this failure is your saviour? Go to hell. Jill will join you too. The effeminate way that Wesker's was like, stop it. <laughs> Cracks me the hell up. Stop laughing at my biological weapon. 
so bad you can see there Chris has his own bad dialogue. Let's just say that much. Oh my God, it's absolutely horrendous, but it's wrong and yet so right. How about Captain Wesker? He is sleeping with the ultimate failure. Okay, after a quick break, we can now move on to our aftermath. Because it's no secret that Resident Evil was highly acclaimed back in its day, even with the bad voice acting. Yeah? This game became a best-selling PS1 title at the time and another mega hit for Capcom, cementing their partnership with Sony for the PS1. The series must have been a good sign to the other big Japanese developers who were also considering abandoning their deals with Nintendo to move over to do games for PlayStation. They want to have something that's just as cinematically visual as Resident Evil. The game design's actually very pretty. Mm -hmm. It's really nice, especially for the time. Capcom hard abandoned Nintendo. They only released three video games for Nintendo 64 during its entire relevance. How long was that? A good four or five years. Ah, that's interesting. I thought it was a good bit longer than that. But that's hindsight more than anything. Capcom did release Resident Evil on the PC and Sega's follow-up to the Mega Drive, the Sega Saturn, both coming out over a year after the PlayStation release, allowing everyone but the people with Nintendos to enjoy the game. (laughs) Resident Evil spawned more sequels once they stopped releasing director's cuts. Were there others after the DualShock one? No, I think the DualShock one killed that whole trend. Oh, good. Mostly moving the IPs to different directors each time. I mean, the series is still going to this day, with Resident Evil 8 Gold having come out by the time the listeners have heard these words. Is that the one with the tall, big, booby vampire lady? Yes. <laughs> right, okay. That's how a lot of people know about that game, I think. And that it's Resident Evil, of course. I did read something on Twitter the other day that there's more polygons in Lady Dimitrescu's ass than there was in the entire Resident Evil 1 game. Just on her arse? I have not verified this, so don't take this as gospel. (laughs) Of course Twitter have done that calculation. (laughs) As much as I avoid doing sequels on this podcast... We really have to consider an exception for Resident Evil 4. Why is that? Shinji Mikami came back to the franchise for Resident Evil 4 mm-hmm. and kickstarted the new standard of survival horror. Right, okay. Eventually, though, Capcom and Nintendo did manage to mend their bridges and come together to create a remake of Resident Evil 1 on the GameCube, using cutting edge tech of the time to deliver a story with far better voice acting. I think I played the first two minutes of it and yeah, the voice acting is better, but it's also like taking some of the charm out of the original. I know, it's too good now and that's why I didn't want to do Resident Evil 2, for example, because I think the bad voice acting has to be experienced. It really does. (laughs) Although this forgiveness between the companies didn't last long due to a famous incident called the Capcom 5. But that's a story for another time. Yeah, we're already kind of a long episode, so... For now, what are your final thoughts on the game? It's pretty flawed, Mm -hmm. but these imperfections, or most of them, give the game its charm. Mm -hmm. It's a product of its time, very much so. I'll get more into this in the three gens, Mm -hmm. but that's worth bearing in mind when you're discussing games like Resident Evil. It's a pioneer of a new genre. True, but the whole concept of this podcast is we're trying to see how these games hold up to a noob. I know, I know. But I also do bear that in mind in my analysis. 
I'm probably going to come across like those YouTubers giving bad faith film criticism people, but I have such mixed feelings about the storytelling. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, except Dr. Jekyll is a competent writer and game designer mm-hmm. with some like, you know, really remarkable flourishes here and there. And Mr. Hyde is a nine-year-old playing with their action men. <laughs> <laughs> I was also a bit miffed that the two playthroughs don't really overlap. Oh, the other character's just in a prison cell for the whole game? I was really hoping there'd be a bit more there. They do that in Resident Evil 2. Oh, good. Yeah, in that game, when you complete the game with Claire, for example, Mm -hmm. you'll then get a save file for Leon that when you play through, it will show what Leon did the entire time Claire was doing her stuff in the game. Yeah, that's a good thing, yeah. Chris has Rebecca Chambers, who's just hiding slash standing in one of the save rooms. Mm-hmm. And Jill has Barry in her playthrough. Where is he in Chris's? Do these guys just die when the building blows up? I'm assuming that in Chris's playthrough, Barry just actually ran home. He just ran home? Yeah. Oh, did he get in the helicopter with Brad? No, he just legged it and just ran down the mountain and ran back to Rack and City. There you go. <laughs> That's canon, is it? You find me a better explanation. My better explanation is that they died in the fucking building. But they're in the sequels. Well, that's true, I guess. I didn't know they were in the sequels. How am I supposed to know that? I think to this game, like, only one Resident Evil protagonist has actually died in the games. Yeah? Yeah, all the rest have survived. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that one person who died. The voice acting really goes without saying because uh, we have said it multiple times and so has like a million other people since Resident Evil came out. Mm -hmm. But I understand that people making video games at that time were still getting to grips with it. Mm -hmm. So there were going to be like little flaws and mistakes here and there. They were casting the right people and stuff for the roles. At the start of the game, this hokey dialogue was a real levity because it's scary right from the start. But as the game went on, I began to get really sick of it, especially when it gets to the climax, as we've talked about, as animated as I have gotten with some of it, you'll probably be able to tell. But I was getting super immersed in the story, even though it was like the lore was maybe a bit convoluted to say the least. And then you hear stuff like, Just take a look at this. It's Forrest. Oh my god. And you're just like, right, never mind. Not scary anymore. And you go back to actually playing the game and fighting a giant snake called Yawn. And then it's like, oh wait, never mind. It is scary after all. But in saying that, the cutscenes were pretty funny. I had a good time laughing at them, and I hopefully I got that across in the episode. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of joy that I'd get from watching The Room. You can't help but, like, at least for me, just, like, love it because it's so silly. Southland Tales is another one. It's like, you can see the film choices being made. They're very deliberate. They're baffling. But you also, like, can't help but feel like, wait, is this guy in on the joke? Is this what he's going for? It's such an interesting film to discuss. I could go off about it like all day. It's that kind of charm. Mm -hmm. I don't know because at the end of the day, I think you have to look at what The Room and what Southland Tales do and say undeniably they do it badly. With Resident Evil, there's no denying that cutscenes being cheesy or not, this is an intimidating 
scary experience. Yes. There really is a lot to like about this game, though. Yeah, there is. There is. The in-game storytelling is top-notch. Could even excuse the weird lore choices because the epistolary aspect of finding the files and reading over them with the gameplay where you're in this like eerie abandoned place is pretty cool. I found it pretty scary for the most part. When the cutscenes weren't happening and no one was speaking, I found it really scary. Mm-hmm. The writing was going for a B-movie feel, but the gap between the tone of the cutscenes and the in-game storytelling are vast. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really feel deliberate. You get plenty of B-movies that are classics, like as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. These films have like artistic merit. They're well-structured and well-put-together like for what they are. They aren't aiming to achieve like greatness or anything, but they are looking to be like, you know, a bit of fun, a bit mm-hmm. of schlock. Those films are still, like, well put together. The different aspects of these things feel a bit more natural. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if you were being really cynical, you could argue that the old, oh, it's like a B-movie thing could be just an excuse to cover its flaws. Very true, yeah. Puzzles are accessible, tricky in some places, but not completely impossible. The game gives you a good amount of help for those who are struggling. I don't think there's a single puzzle you weren't able to work out with enough context clues. Yeah, that's the thing. If you don't bother reading all the files and stuff, you're going to find it a bit trickier. That's what all they're there for. For a lot of people, it'll be fairly straightforward. But there is a satisfaction in that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm solving this puzzle, despite the fact that I'm terrified for my life right now. <laughs> the impact of Resident Evil and survival horror cannot be understated. It's easily because of the success of Resident Evil that we got things like Silent Hill and Parasite Eve. Yeah, yeah. It brought horror to the PlayStation 1 like nothing had before. Oh yeah, like Petscop, which is like an ARG, alternate reality game. It's a YouTube video, it's a playthrough of a fake game. Yeah, which like seems like quite innocent but kind of creepy game on the surface. But when you press a certain cheat, as the player was told to do, it gets into this really dark realm under the game. And he's got to try and figure out what the story is. A bit like how someone watching those videos will try and figure out what the story of these Let's Plays are and what's behind it. Petscop uses the aesthetic of a PlayStation 1 game to create like an eerie nostalgia, something like darker beneath something that we've perceived as being like innocent and fun and part of our childhood at least for people of like our generation Mm -hmm. is really neat storytelling the haunted ps1 demo discs are anthologies of short indie games or demos for larger indie games that use the formats of demo discs that you used to get in like gaming magazines back in the day yeah these only came out in like 2020 and 2021 yeah they're quite recent yeah they're very recent These kind of games are considered, like, very nostalgic, especially to people who were very young at the time. Mm -hmm. Storytelling that uses internet and video game aesthetics are getting more popular as time goes on, and I live for it, honestly. There's a great tradition around video games, not just in games, but even just around them. But if you look at the story of Ben Drowned, which is about a haunted Zelda cartridge, or The Legend of Polybius, this long-forgotten arcade game, that's part of a conspiracy of the CIA to brainwash children or something. Yeah, these stories don't involve an actual game. 
that you can play, but just goes to show how gaming has become such a part of our culture that horror can be built around these temples just they can with the ring and its haunted videotape. Yeah. Media becomes something that we love, but it also be something that can scare us. Oh, yeah. And it's brilliant to see that we don't try and pretend that video games aren't as susceptible to it. Video games have a bad habit of not being able to portray other emotions outside of fun. But I think horror is one of the ones they've nailed down strongly. It's a mixed success. There's some things that are a bit goofy from time to time, but you get that with horror films and TV shows as well. Mm-hmm. Which, and it's, I, I live for it. I'm so looking forward to seeing where all of this goes, you know? Oh no, Jen. Do you hear that noise outside? What? It's the write-ins. They're coming in to get us. Ah! I made the call out on Twitter as normal. I don't get emails anymore. I just always get them on Twitter these days. But you're also welcome to email if you like. Adam of the Diabolical Podcast at Damsedad. Also at Diabolical Pod. Great podcast. Do check him out on Twitter. The first genuinely terrifying video game. Going through a door, waiting for it to load and not knowing what might be on the other side was intense. Any noise that wasn't your own footsteps would get my pulse racing. Great, great game. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Perfect explanations of how tense it feels to open doors in this game. Again, it's, it's hiding load times. That's the only reason why this door takes so long to open. But I love how it's taking something which is a negative, needing to wait for the game to load, and turning it into a positive by putting anticipation in it. Yeah, another example of them working around the limitations of the time. Yes. Deleted Saves podcast at Deleted Saves writes in with Lots of camp, lots of nonsense, a good start that had better sequels. And who builds a mansion like that? Uh, Umbrella. (laughs) As I think of the mansion more, the more it does seem to have a level of sense to its design, I have to say. Oh yeah? The West Wing, which is where the dining room and the staff quarters were. The right wing has more of the living quarters for the people who own the mansion. That's where things like the art gallery were. Right. There is some logic to it, if you ignore that the locks needing four hexagonal crests, for example. It's a bit like the thing we had with Doom, where it's like, why are the skulls that open the hell doors, why are they everywhere? But on the other side, like, all that stuff not making sense, it does add to the horror mindset, is built on the logic of a nightmare where things don't connect the way you expect them to. Which is exactly what Umbrella want, because they are evil, McEvil and Sons. Exactly. They live to make people scared and terrified, and they want to rule the world comically villainous they are going to design a house like that it makes total sense (laughs) dissect that film podcast at dissect that film says this was the first horror game i ever played as a kid truly terrifying with ridiculously hard puzzles that still blow my mind that i solved them as a kid the tank controls were infuriating at times but overall it's an amazing horror game that created a memorable franchise Mm -hmm. couldn't agree more these games seemed incredibly terrifying to play as a kid where I didn't have much of a relationship with horror to begin with. Mm-hmm. My dad and big brother were not that into horror and they're the ones who would have probably showed me that kind of stuff. The only thing I can think of was that my dad once sat me down and showed me the thing. That movie scared the absolute shite out of me as a kid. Great film to put on at a family gathering. We were at my family's for your birthday and mum and her infinite wisdom asked oh sandro you can pick as a good film you know all about that which is true yeah and i wanted to watch more john carpenter films because they're always brilliant 
yeah, you really like that film. Me and mum made it to the scene with the dogs and had to nope out. I (laughs) I couldn't deal with it. Like, A, body horror, and B, hurting dogs. Can't handle it. Nope. (laughs) And finally, Gaming Together Podcast at Gaming Together Pod writes in with Jill Sandwich. Yes. Jill Sandwich indeed. Yes. <laughs> that's, you know what's going on to like spawn memes in other video games? Has it? If you ever see Dead Rising, which is a zombie horror game that's set in a shopping mall, has much more ties to Dawn of the Dead than this game has. Yeah, yeah. There is like a sandwich shop in there, like a Subway Sandwiches-esque shop called Jill Sandwiches. Yeah. I wonder what would be in a Jill Sandwich. Well, she was almost going to be a Jill Sandwich, so I imagine there's a lot of tomato sauce. Yeah, not like ketchup, like pasta sauce. Yeah, and you know, because she's going to push plas, I'll put some pepperoni in there. <laughs> and garlic, which as any Italian knows is the massive unlocking the flavour. Yes. <laughs> Let's just finish this off with our favourite place to end this podcast, The Three Gens. Yeah, it always comes back to me talking about myself. For last gen, did the game live up to your expectations? And has playing this helped you understand any references to the game you've seen? Uh, the cheesy cutscenes are iconic for a reason. It's good to know the context of those. A whole bunch of YouTubers also use Resident Evil music a fair bit. Mm-hmm. I'll be able to know which uh, track that comes from. And if one has the giant snake theme song, it shall be going off right away. <laughs> Coming back to the Resident Evil films for a moment, going by the first game... The films really do have nothing to do with the Resident Evil canon. Completely nothing. Yeah, they're really just like alternate universe fan fiction, and it might as well not be Resident Evil. The adaptation we should have had, right, instead of having like Mila Jovovich being hot, there's like my playthrough where Jill keeps running into walls and doors and things (laughs) and enemies, even though she should be running away from them. And turning around very slowly as she's walking, (laughs) dying all the time, and the bad hammy acting, and stupid dialogue, and more importantly, yawn the snake. We need the snake, sharks, and just random puzzles for no reason. I need this adaptation in my life. (laughs) The big bad mutant boy that I first predicted is not the scientist as far as we know. No, we never know who was the tyrant in this game. He's just somebody. We don't know if he was originally a person, if he was like Frankenstein or something. I don't know. There also weren't as many monsters as I was expecting. I was expecting a lot more. I'm glad there weren't. Do you mean a lot more different types or just a lot more numbers? I was meaning a lot more zombies. Understandable. Again, you have to remember, like, how many people are in a mansion at any one time? Who knows? Depends your mansion, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But there's a far wider variety of monsters than expected. I've seen YouTube videos that have mentioned the puzzles really briefly, but for some reason I wasn't really expecting them, like, or all that many of them in the gameplay, Mm -hmm. which I'm actually quite happy with. I quite like the puzzles, and I didn't like encountering the zombies, so it's worked out for me perfectly fine. For current gen, do you feel the game holds up as a classic? And is there anything in the game that didn't work for you? I think so, yeah. It's pretty flawed, but worth bearing in mind that it's the first survival horror game. Mm-hmm. I mean, that hasn't been given the title in hindsight. 
Like they're still getting to grips with a new kind of storytelling and gameplay, just like the early novels and early films and even earlier video games did. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on, they've been making things more and more complex. As for things that I didn't really like, um, I don't know if I've quite mentioned that I did not like the tank controls. You've mentioned it a few times, I think. Possibly. Yeah. I know it's something they were experimenting with at the time, but... I'm very glad they dropped it, and we've not seen it in modern gaming particularly. No, even that Resident Evil GameCube remake has a mode where you've got absolute controls. Mm-hmm. So no matter what way the camera's looking at you, down will either make you move down or move towards the camera. Left and right make you go left or right of the camera, and up makes you go up the camera or away from the camera. So as they should be, basically. Yes. Yeah, as much as there needs to be challenge in video games, like, not that kind of challenge. No, it made sense at the time, but in hindsight, it's not a control system that stuck around. Yeah. And finally, for next gen, would you recommend it to a newcomer? And are you interested to try other games in the franchise? Um, As much as I found it tricky in places, I think it's worth a shot. I will emphasise, I don't think it should be your very first game, though. There are other games that are a lot more beginner-friendly. If you're a horror fan, it's definitely going to be worth your time. If you're curious about this game or any game we're talking about, then go and do it. It may be what gets you into gaming. You may not have the same difficulties that I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck it, go for it. Do you want to try any more Resident Evil games? Part of me does, but then, you know, I'm looking over my shoulder at Resident Evil 2 and seeing Mr. X waiting for me and I don't really know. Get back to me on that one. <laughs> I think we should play it at some point. Maybe next time we want to play something horror-based. I do have a copy of it for my PlayStation downstairs. We could play it at any time. That's true. Well, if we ever do play any of those, Sandra will probably give updates on the Starter Quest Twitter. Yes. And with that, our time with Resident Evil draws to a close. And we look on to our next game. After the past six months of covering such horrific and gory games like Doom, Mortal Kombat, and now Resident Evil, I think we could all do with playing something cute, cuddly, and family-friendly. So in our next episode, we'll be going back to the world of Nintendo and looking at gaming's most adorable vorophile with Kirby Superstar. Did you have to call him that? (laughs) We want to feature your thoughts and experiences of the game. Please send your tweets to at StarterQuest, or if you want to go a bit longer than a tweet, you can email us, startaquest at gmail.com with your thoughts, feelings, and recommended dishes for Kirby Superstar. And with that, thank you very much for listening. This episode's release date lines up quite closely with the anniversary of our first episode. It's been one year of doing this podcast, and we have loved it the entire time. Yeah. Please take your time to review us on your podcast platform of choice. It always helps us get noticed by other listeners. To that end, by the way, little call to action. We've been getting some insane numbers through Samsung Podcasts over the past few months, and I'd love to know why. If you've found our podcast on Samsung Podcasts, please let us know. Please email us and tell us if we're just getting really liked by their algorithm and why our Doom episode has like five times the views of all our other videos. Thank you guys so much. I write and you can find my website at com. It's got most of my published portfolio on there. My short stories, my poems, flash fictions and things. My debut collection, Keep On Spinning, was released in 2020. It's inspired by space and the stars and planets to like talk about mental health. 
it helped get me through the years that I was writing it. So if you fancy getting a copy, you can get it through my website or you can get it through my publisher on hybriddrich.co.uk. That's Drich, D-R-E-I-C-H. Yeah, nice little Scottish word there. I'd like to especially thank Mono Memory for this episode's theme song titled Resident Evil 1 Savoring Remix. This guy is an awesome remixer with his music available on Spotify, Apple, YouTube and Bandcamp. He even recently done work on the soundtrack for Arcade Paradise, that game I was talking about in the intro, including the credits theme. So please give him some love and check out more of his stuff. Just search Mono Memory on your music platform of choice or go to fanlink.to forward slash mono memory music. Until next time, we'll be searching Dreamland for the lamb sauce. It'll be a goodbye from me, Alessandro. And a goodbye from me, Jen. Quest completed. There's some bows in this house. There's some bows in this house. <laughs> I said certified freak. Seven days a week. B-O-W. Make that researcher weep. <laughs> 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 right. Okay. Anyway. <laughs>